called Jesse, aka the Bizzle. Oh, the Bizzle. Thank you. <laughs> the Bizzle. Thank you, the Bizzle. Yeah. The Bizzle. All right, Bizzlecast listeners, welcome back to the Bizzlecast. We are doing something a little different today. We are going to be talking about tabletop gaming and board gaming, which is certainly uh, an extension or a part of nerd culture. But it will be really nice to take a break from the big movie properties um, uh, in terms of the movies themselves and nerd culture and all the critiques I've been doing. I am here with Maddie G, uh, aka Matt Goisman. Matt, it's great to have you on. This was your suggested topic. I will say, man, really quickly, um, my ratings are way up the last couple months. So whatever I'm doing is apparently working, uh, even though it's making me angry. <laughs> Quite possibly it involved bringing me back on the show. That's very possible. I'm going to give Brick Girl a little credit as well. For sure. Yeah, um, she, uh, yeah. she's real good. Um, and I think your total output is probably more than it was like four months ago. And yeah. I'm a big believer that the more you produce, the more results you get. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all about subscribers. And so you need to produce a lot because it doesn't really matter the per episode download at the time. But if right. someone subscribes and then downloads 80 of your episodes, like it's amazing. Um, (laughs) so certainly having last Jedi and black Panther to talk about after a bunch of shit, uh, helped a lot. Um, And it helped that they were both like, they were talk worthy. Like how much can you really talk about Dr. Strange? Very little because it was kind of substanceless, but last Jedi and black Panther both had things to say and they caused ripples in the culture. So they were worth talking about at length. I mean, even bad Star Wars movies yield tons of conversation. I mean, pe- sure. we and everyone can rip on the prequels as much as possible, but it's a constant source of t- conversation for Star Wars fans. Sure. Um, whereas most Marvel and DC movies are pretty surface level at best. Um, we don't get a Black Panther every day. We, you know what I mean? So sure. uh, that that helped. I am going to go see it again tomorrow for my second time. Nice. Uh, That'll probably be my last time in theater because I definitely don't want to OD on it. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so that that will be fun. But we're going to talk some tabletop gaming today, which I'm excited about because I love the show Tabletop, and I've loved getting sort of I was going to say back into the hobby of tabletop gaming. But I really haven't done much since I was like much much younger. So mm-hmm. you suggested the podcast. Um, I know that you were probably gaming more than me, but I introduced you to Tabletop, um, uh, the show. Um, So I guess just as an opener, like, uh, you know, why, why do you think, uh, um, like, what gave you the idea to do the show and and kind of what's like your gaming background, I guess? Uh, The idea for the show was that it was something to talk about that wasn't a Marvel, DC, or Star Wars movie or TV shows that you probably hadn't seen. Yeah, or hate, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, or hate. I mean, especially in the wake of the the Batgirl quote-unquote fiasco, I I felt like kind of both of us were kind of just turned off to talking about these big tentpole movies anymore, and so this was a different direction to go. Um, word. So I, I mean, my personal can, I mean, I've always played board games. I have never been super creative in the ones I played. You know, I was always sort of a classicist when it comes to these things. And then over the last five to eight years, uh, I started getting introduced to the variety of games that of more modern games that had come out 
found I liked them a lot more and found I liked game nights a lot more than other kinds of social gatherings. Um, if you have problems with just general communication skills like I do, it's a great way to spend time with friends because you have something specific to talk about. Uh, and that's really relieving for somebody who has tons of social anxiety like I do, even around people I know really well. Totally. Um, so just from my perspective, I wasn't even really aware of kind of the rise of so-called designer games in the last like 15 to 20 years. Like Mm -hmm. I had never heard of Carcassonne. I had never heard of, I even hadn't even really heard of Catan. I hadn't heard of, you know, even like a lot of social deduction games that aren't even like real board games, like werewolf. Like I had sort of heard about, but never really played maybe back in the camp days. Mm -hmm. Um, now part of this, and I'll get more into this later because this is a constant source of frustration. Growing up, none of my friends were either board gamers or computer gamers. I had one friend that was a computer nerd like me and we would like play Starcraft over like 56 K modems and stuff like that against each other. And, you know, do uh, like fuck around, but it was sort of a secret part of our life. And then in college, my friends definitely were not into that stuff. Um, and so it just hasn't really been a part of my life. I'll go into this more later because I kind of forget a year and a half ago or so how I discovered tabletop, which got me into modern board gaming. I'm 95% sure it was Felicia Day. I think I was <laughs> watching the guild again for the first time in a number of years and was just, and then I stumbled across her geek and sundry network of which tabletop was the first uh, and biggest show that they mm-hmm. did other than Felicia days, you know, vlogs and stuff like that. And it was Will Wheaton, which I got a kick out of just in, principle and i started watching and became totally addicted and still watch episodes and rewatch episodes so that that's how i got into it but i really had no clue and i still don't have a lot of people to play with and so most of (laughs) my board gaming is either online on the computer or just like watching videos and like learning how to play games or i do do board gaming with kids after school of various ages so that's really fun but i don't have a lot of peers um who i I can play the sort of more advanced stuff with so what's been um your kind of experience in the last couple of years have you had uh trouble getting game groups together like where do you game where do you get your games how do you decide what games to get all that good stuff i i'm pretty lucky most of my friends that i see on a regular basis like board games and have good collections on their own so you know i got to play monarch because friends of mine had seen the tabletop episode about it and had bought it you know i have played I actually played Betrayal on the House on the Hill or whatever it's called like 10 years ago way before Tabletop did anything with it I didn't even know what it was I barely understood the rules but uh, terrible play- episode but worth it just for Ashley Birch who is like my dream internet girl go ahead Yeah I mean there are um some episodes of Tabletop it seems like they get screwed by how the game starts and then they're pretty much just it's 45 minutes of watching them flail, you know, desperately to not fail, but you already know they're going to. Um, so like the, the fire, the fire men game, that's basically pandemic, but with fi- fires in buildings, it seemed like they were doomed from the start with that one. Cause of the way the fires all naturally spawned. Um, yeah, the, so, the, the cooperative season four games were very split between yeah. the awesomeness of 
uh, Eldritch Horror. Um, Which is the, probably my favorite episode. Yeah, we'll get back to that, because it's the, probably the final episode ever of Tabletop. Yeah. Um, and also the semi-cooperative uh, Fury of Dracula, which I loved, and I think yeah, you liked that, Yeah, that's a great too. episode. That one's yeah. really funny, But too. the fire episode um, was weak, and the Star Trek episode was yeah. really weak. Even though, again, Jesse Cox, one of my favorite internet people, tried to make that funny and fun, but the rest of the crowd sucked, and the game mechanic... The, the problem is some of these game mechanics, and we'll get, we'll get more into depth this later, are just janky. Like, Betrayal House on the Hill, people mm-hmm. love because of the theme and because there's, like, a hundred yeah. stories to tell, but the actual yep. game mechanics are completely nonsensical and so they relied on the charisma of the people there which only ashley birch had essentially and so she was making jokes um and and she's now a big uh voiceover star and and uh writer and stuff like that um but yeah she has been for a while i mean hey ash what you're playing is a is a pretty old series at this point i mean right but she also they just celebrated the one year anniversary of horizon zero dawn which is the best-selling ps4 exclusive ever Ever, right. um, and which she voiced the main character and won a shit ton of awards, deservedly for. I just finished my. I'm not joking. This 120 hour playthrough of that game wow. um, is absolutely fantastic. Up there but, with Skyrim for uh, for yeah, Death. Oh yeah, yeah. probably also netted her a pretty damn big payday, which. I never got the sense, hey, Ash, what you're playing was super profitable. I mean, yep, uh, but, but it got her job and it yep, got her brother sure. to be a game designer in the industry. So he's doing pretty well, too, I think. But anyway, I think Betrayal, yeah. by the way, is a yeah. pretty fun game to play. Now, maybe I'm not saying it it's not I've fun. Played. I'm just saying the mechanics are janky. So you don't know. Like, for example, I know you don't love Lords of Waterdeep. It's one of my favorite episodes. But one of the reasons Lords of Waterdeep it works on a show like Tabletop is it's a Euro style game. And so it's it's. Um, it's circumscribed in terms of right. r- it's kind of rubber banded and that players are pretty close the whole time and mm-hmm. it, it's very methodical in terms of how things come out and so forth. Sure. Some of these games, it's just the luck of the draw. And if you don't have the yes, personalities sure. to, to go with it, and we're going to talk about some of the highlight episodes um, where, where the personalities really shine. If you don't have that, then it can collapse under the weight of just janky mechanics. Yeah, no, I, I would agree with that. Um, Hopefully, you know, if one of the things I sometimes think is if you have a group of people who like being with each other, almost any activity they do is going to be fun. So, like, I have actually started watching Critical Role. I don't think I'm ever going to go back and watch the first campaign because there's a hundred episodes of it and they're all four hours long. But it's fun to watch these seven people all have fun with each other because it's clearly something they all like to do even if they all look super fucking dorky doing it. <laughs> Bailey's pregnant, by the way. She just announced it really? on Twitter. Yeah. <clears throat> She's uh, married to Travis, right? right? She is. Willingham. Yeah. yeah, he's the coolest main person on that show. They just The episode I just watched, the, a guest player was Kari Payton, who people would know as King Ezekiel on The Walking Dead. He was like 5,000 times cooler than any of them. Yeah. Um, but Travis seems like he's the coolest of the seven who actually play regularly together. Yeah, it's funny because it's like you know, like nerdy, like nerdy internet girls are, are kind of the girls you want to marry. And I think same thing goes for guys. So it's funny to see, uh, there are other examples too, of these sort of internet voiceover personalities getting together. Um, you know, it's like, why not? Like, you know what you're getting with, with a nerd. We'll get back to nerd culture a little bit later. Um, but just to jump back to tabletop. So yeah, Yeah, so Will Wheaton, so Felicia Day, um, basically got famous through, uh, the guild, uh, which was the, 
as far as I know, the first like major YouTube only TV show sensation that started mm-hmm. in like 2007 and was about her actual addiction to World of Warcraft. And it was sort of part of her therapy to write this show about <laughs> a, about six guild, guild members who all happen to live in the same city and right. almost by accident meet each other in real life and it just constantly things going to shit, them meeting each other, but also them growing at the same time. They all lack major social skills for very different reasons. Amy Okuda's on it, who you know from yep. Tabletop. Yep. Um, you would probably recognize Jeff Lewis if you saw him, a really quirky, tall, bald, weird-looking Jewish comedian. Um, and some uh, Will Wheaton famously uh, was the the bizarre, evil love interest of Felicia Day's character in the middle seasons. Sounds um, about right. And they were friends already, but they, they really became buddies through that. And when she was developing her Geek and Sundry network, which is now um, combined with the Nerdist, like a major empire owned by Legendary, uh, which is a Chinese company. But anyways, when she was making it in the beginning, like she basically just had played a bunch of tabletop games with Will. It was like she's like, "You're great at this. You're not doing much right now, except occasional TV appearances. Like, how would you like to host this game?" And he was like, "I would fucking love it." And they just ran with it and Mm -hmm. you can tell the difference between seasons one through four in terms of production quality i would argue like with most tv shows the early seasons are better than the later seasons um although it doesn't really drop off except for some season four episodes but they they knew what they wanted almost from the beginning in terms of camera angles in terms of who sits where in terms of how they frame the shots in terms of the music even the opening theme never changes the opening introduction never changes from moment one it was a very 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 serious production um and so anyway so that's how i stumbled across it and so i i came from the entertainment internet youtube angle rather than the board game angle um right and so i did mention it a bunch on the podcast and eventually you just were like bizzle doesn't shut up about this i might as well watch one or two uh, I think that's basically how it went. I can't actually remember which episode I watched first. Uh, maybe Pandemic, because um, I like Morgan Webb, because I remember her from her G4 days. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then I had played Pandemic, and I knew what it was about. And then I slowly worked my way through it from there. I've seen almost all the episodes. I don't think I've actually ever watched all of Star Trek Catan and I don't think I ever – I never finished Fiasco because I got really bored watching it. And I think there's maybe one or two more that I, I never quite managed to get through. Um, it should uh, be mentioned, by the way, really quickly, yeah. that female internet personalities like Morgan Webb, like Felicia Day, were targets of the Gamergate controversy a couple oh, of yeah. years ago when, you know, hashtag fake gamer girls, you know, it was apparently a crime to be attractive, smart, nerdy, and great on television and love video games and stuff like that. And to have an crime. opinion about maybe people should be nicer to people who aren't like them who want to play online games yeah uh, no i yeah felicia day got doxxed i mean people gave out her personal info so that she would be harassed um and i'm pretty sure the reason chris cluey the hunter for the vikings got yeah met these people is because he was always an incredible you know vocal supporter of the women who would come out saying these are the horror stories i have about playing online games um including one where he said go ahead and try to dox me asshole i play in the nfl you're just gutless and you're attacking what you perceive as weak-willed women. And sure enough, nobody ever tried to troll him because 
he's kind of dorky looking, but he's also like the most jacked dude who ever appeared on tabletop. And in real life, he would kick the shit uh, out of his trolls. I think Brandon Routh would give him a run for his money. That's true. I have did not think about Brandon Routh. Um, Brandon Routh is pretty cut looking too. And, and I love the reason I love the You're fortune. Both pretty swole. Yeah. Even, the reason I love the fortune and glory episode, even though not only do they massacre the game, but will Wheaton He's, actually gives an insert at the beginning, which he never does from like seven months after they had yeah. fired. Do you know the whole story about how they fired their producer after season three? And there was like a big fallout and will Wheaton bashed him online. And it turns out he had like a fake Kickstarter campaign. It was like a whole thing. No, I didn't know anything about that. So anyways, so that, th- that was like the last draw was the fortune and glory thing um i love will wheaton he shouldn't blame his producer for that stuff and he apologized later about it even though producer's apparently a bit of a hack but anyways they massacred the fortune and glory but it's great because it's felicia and her brother ryan and ryan is now a full-time member of geek and sundry even though i believe he was like a architect or type like he was like totally unrelated to this industry but they have great sibling rivalry and then felicia is totally smitten with brandon routh and trying to hide it and doing a poor job of it (laughs) uh, which was awesome uh and so um but really quickly gamergate in the end couldn't have worked out better for felicia day gave her even more publicity um and you know it was horrible at the time but now she can basically do anything whenever she wants she has a baby and she you know sold her network ish i don't know what her involvement is but you were saying about you know the best episodes are when the people are friends but felicia's on a good amount of episodes and almost all of them are good to very good to great i would argue no i would agree with that and even even fortune and glory which they do screw the rules up uh, like about 30 times as i get as i understand it the setting is so much fun of, you know, we're basically Indiana Jones running around fighting Nazis and stealing treasures from pyramids that it was enjoyable to watch, even if I wasn't getting the best sense of how you actually, you know, play the game. Um, and they totally fell into their personalities like Brandon right. Routh was just murdering nazis big strong guy yeah yeah will wheaton was like failing his dice rolls over and over again like he always does um felicia day was just shopping around the world and doing nothing Yeah, she didn't really do anything except give will wheaton the victory by screwing her brother over which is pretty funny but Um, but as she normally does she got the role-playing aspect going which these games don't necessarily have i mean fortune glory has tons of theme built in but to really start, you know, doing bad accents and giving your characters weird, crazy stories. Like, Felicia's always doing it. She's done in Lords of Waterdeep. She mm-hmm. did it in that game. Like, she's she, she's been on an RPG episode at least once, I think. Like, a dedicated RPG episode. Um, uh, I don't know how many dedicated RPGs they actually... Well, Fate Core is an RPG. I don't know what else you call it, so... Is she on that? On the fake core episode, yeah, yeah, oh, okay. I just haven't seen that in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's the one I was thinking. She's of. the yeah. plant monster lady. Oh yeah, and she's really good. I mean, that's one of my favorite episodes. Um, yeah. So okay, so what were what were some more of the episodes that that got you into the show? And it could be just ones that were super entertaining because of the personalities, or ones where you're like, this game is awesome. I want to play this ASAP. Well, the one that I really wanted to play after watching was Eldritch Horror because I am a huge HP Lovecraft fan even recognizing that he was a super racist, anti-Semitic asshole. He still invented modern horror and was one of the early creators of modern sci-fi too. So I'm willing to overlook a little bit the fact that he was a guy in the 20s writing like a guy in the 20s would write about race and religion. 
whatever. I love the Elder God stuff. I love Cthulhu and that whole mythos. So watching a game that was all about stopping the rise of the old ones immediately spoke to me. Uh, And then I got to play it. And the first thing I learned when I got to play it is that one of the characters is Citizen Kane from Citizen Kane. Um, They like, seriously. So in that game, there's a bunch of different kinds of characters you can play. And one of them is a broadcaster named Charlie Kane, who takes a break from his political campaign to help stop the rise of the old ones. And the middle third of Citizen Kane is about a guy who gets his start as a newspaper man because it's it's based off the life of William Randolph Hearst uh, and then runs for office and the scandal derails his campaign. And that basically sends him into the um, the tailspin that that led ends up with him kind of just dying old and alone. Hmm. Um, But so the fact that Charlie Foster Kane is in Eldritch Horror, I just got the biggest kick out of. Uh, I thought that was the funniest little in-joke they could have thrown into it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, um, for whatever reason, got a little overexposed to all the Eldritch Horror-type games early on. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm not a huge Lovecraft fan, mostly because I don't like his writing and because... Uh, it's very hard. It's a hard writing style. I totally, yeah. I get what the complaints are about him. Yeah. And it's just not my style of horror fantasy or whatever you want to call it. But I recognize the influence. I recognize that it's, it's the easily the best free property, uh, intellectual property out there. And so that's mm-hmm. why fantasy flight games, uh, in particular is the largest, uh, independent American gaming company based in Minneapolis makes almost all the themed games. You guys w- would think of all the star Wars games, all the game of Thrones games, all the Eldritch right. horror games, like, uh, Warhammer games, like you name it. They make it, and they do a pretty damn good job, even though themed uh, Maritrash games, as, as they're sometimes called, get a bad rap. Uh, they do a really good job overall. Um, so I'm, I don't love the Lovecraft games. However, I will say, Eldritch Horror, just in terms of mechanics of a uh, shared cooperative game and the beautiful giant board and all the cards and everything, is a great experience. Mm. Um, yeah. Maybe we should talk in a second about cooperative versus competitive games. Um, I will sure. say, man, you, if you haven't already... I've heard the the writing in particular for the Arkham Horror card game, the the living card game, um, right. is excellent. I've played the first campaign or two. It was very good. It's definitely a little bit less kitschy and more involved than some of the other games where it's more like flavor text. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but uh, the Arkham Horror Court game uh, is part of what they call living card games. Um, and for you guys d- uh, don't know, you know, if you're out there and, and you've seen collectible card games like Magic, Pokemon, Yu-Gi-Oh, you have to buy all these packs and it's random cards and it's possible to compete unless you have thousands of dollars and the rules are always changing and the cards are always changing. It's a very, very, very expensive habit. I've only tried it once, somewhat recently with Star Wars, Star Wars Destiny. I ran out of money very quickly and yeah, realized... I Magic as a kid it's it's a it's a habit and i mean that in the drug sense yeah and so what what fantasy flight did which was so great was create what they call lcgs living card games and their base uh, sets that come out there are full-size expansions and then they're like little um uh, quest packs but you know exactly what you're getting in the pack and everyone gets the same exact thing and everyone has access to the same thing now a good amount of these are cooperative which is great but even the competitive ones you know it's like there's like the game of thrones card game which is still get 
gets played somewhat competitively. There's like I think a, a base set, and all the major houses at this point have like a base set essentially. Right. And so it's not cheap, but if you have all those cards, then anyone you play will have access to these same exact cards as you. So right. it's pure strategy. And actually, deck building games uh, were one of the things that got me into the uh, the uh, modern board gaming because I could play it on my phone and because they're two player right. because I could teach someone quickly and games go in 15 minutes. I probably played 1500 games of Star Realms on my phone over the last mm-hmm. year and a half or so. Um, and so th- those those kind of g- games are great. Uh, have you been exposed to any of the these living card games? I don't think I've played any of the living card games. I've played Dominion quite a few times and which is a, a deck building game where everybody has the same set of cards and you just you buy what you can and you sure. try to... And that has a million um, expansions, too. The, the only difference is living card games are like Dominion or Ascension, but they're story-based. So... Um, like I f- don't think I've played any of those. So the first one, actually, the first modern one was the Lord of the Rings two-player cooperative games, which they're still producing materials for, even though it's been years later. I have the first couple sets. It's it's great. It's so hard. I mean, you get your ass kicked constantly. You can mm-hmm. play um, like solitaire style. You can play with somebody else, but it adds stories from all the different eras of Tolkien and stuff like that. So that's where it started. Dominion's the same thing in Ascension. It's just it adds new mechanics and new cards and stuff like that but the idea is the same you know what you're getting in that box right um so i you know if the opportunity came i would certainly give those a shot uh but no i haven't played any of them um so uh, part of the great thing about tabletop that we've sort of been talking about but i want to expand the conversation but also what's been frustrating to me is Will and you know people like Felicia and Patrick Rothfuss and right. Seth Green, people that he has on regularly who are friends of his and stuff, they make the experience so fun that the games end up being more fun than they actually are. And yeah. it just goes to show you that no matter how cool a board game is, it's not going to be cool unless you have great people and people are willing to lower their inhibitions and have a good time. And my frustration is I'll go to the game store and I have to say the stereo type of tabletop gamers being big chubby bitter bearded smelly ugly dudes right is more true than maybe i would have thought uh, thinking yeah, that initially I, I, it was I, a stereotype I, and th- those people are all about just winning and playing quickly and not necessarily having a, a good time in the way i want to right um I've read some some stories about women who go to gaming conventions or D&D nights at comic book stores, and they are essentially chased out by really sexist, misogynistic comments from everybody there. Um, so this idea that only video game players have this same toxicity, not true at all. I'm not going to comment on whether I think it's more or less with one or the other, but it exists I would say anything that is popular enough to get a lot of people interested will get crappy people interested in it at some point. Um, Mm -hmm. But what you were talking about, uh, I I agree with. And it's one of the things that's kind of always made me a little ambivalent about playing any like true RPGs like they play on the show, like Dragon Age, like Fate Core, like any of them. If you can get a game master who's a genius like you know, Chris Primus or uh, Ryan Macklin or Wheaton or Matt Mercer, yep. then they will lead you through what I'm sure is a very fun campaign. Most people are not that creative and most players are not professional actors or voice actors 
who are naturally expressive and embellishing. So you will probably inevitably have a muted reaction compared to what you are seeing on tabletop because the people they bring on are brought on because they know they're going to be showy and uh, excitable and outgoing. Um, and by the and way, most people just aren't no, like sorry. that or they'd yeah. be professional actors or they would, you know, or something. Just as a quick aside, um, Matt Mercer, Laura Bailey, Willingham, Marisha Ray, uh, some of those other people, literally right. the most voice acting credits in the industry. Um, yeah. And that's how they all met each other, became friends. Any like triple a developer uh especially japanese games like the mm-hmm. final fantasy games and the you know, uh, uh dragon quest games and stuff or like all the lord of the rings games they're all, like literally like shadow of mordor matt mercer's right. the main character laura bailey and marisha ray are the two lead female characters the other lead female character um, is Jennifer Hale, who's super famous from the previous generation for doing Femme Shepherd from the Mass Effect games, which everyone agrees that Female Shepherd is way better because of Jennifer Hale um, from the Mass Effect games, and she's in there as well. So those people are making tons of money doing voice work. And they started Critical Role because even they have hiatuses between roles sometimes, you know, for all the work that they do. And so they mm-hmm. started just D&Ding, and, and again, I if, I don't know if it, it must have been Felicia or whoever it was like, let's make this a show. Uh, Matt Mercer in particular is like the lead male voice in every game at this point, um, which is which is totally fine. But yeah, man, I mean, it is hard to find those people. But I would say board gaming in terms of sexism is way worse because you're in person and it's sure. you know mansplaining well, and ma- man intimidation in person is a thing. And right. I-, I follow a good amount of uh, YouTube and Twitch streamers who are female uh, at this point. And it's like you can do it on your own. You can do it from your house. You can disable comments. You can moderate sure. your Twitch stream so you don't get hateful language. Um, you know, a lot of the female um, webcasters, you know, are buddies with some male webcasters, which help because they sort of have each other's back, like what happened with Gamergate, for example. Um, but it, we had um, the first. Uh, so, do you know what PAX is? PAX is like a yeah. big independent, right? Big independent like video I, game. I think, yeah. yeah. And it's all over the world, including Australia and all over the U.S., blah, blah, blah. So they just, for the first year, they did the board game version of PAX called PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia at the convention center. Great. I was totally stoked. And I show up. I I took my dad on the first day. He goes, this is literally the ugliest collection of people I've ever seen in my entire life. It was all bearded fat dudes. There was not a celebratory atmosphere. There were very few women. Now, there was competition there, so that's part of why it was serious, which is totally fine. Um, And it was cool to go to all the vendors booth but it was not really like an enjoyable experience whatsoever nothing like the comic cons where people are getting dressed up and by the way at this point you know the comic cons are very um have a huge female minority there with cosplaying and stuff like that that hasn't really penetrated people who go not everybody who goes to a a, a comic convention cosplays no 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 but what i'm saying is that's a big uh, feature of attraction for both men and women to see i don't mean uh, if it's like comic con san diego I've been to just comic conventions in Boston where it's literally just people with booths selling and buying comic books. Yeah, no, I'm talking about like, I mean, the conventions at this point are way beyond comic conventions like Dragon Con in Atlanta or yeah. Emerald City in Seattle or Texas has a couple, uh, California Wisconsin has a bunch. for a long time I had one called Gen Con that I went to a few times because uh, D&D started yeah. before Wizards by the Coast bought it. It was based in Wisconsin. 
Um, yep. yep. Gen Con's still happening. They might move it around. I don't know at this point where it is. Um, but some of the cities are not the biggest cities. And I, I think board game culture th- has thrived in small to medium sized cities. And the reason for that is there's just not a lot going on. And like Philadelphia is not New York or LA, <laughs> but I know in New York you have to look pretty hard to find good gaming. There's lots of hipster gaming, which is just like faux gaming. Like, oh, it's a gaming cafe with Jenga. I mean, that's the problem. <laughs> like, there's only places that were gaming cafe. They've got like Jenga and a Monopoly board. Um, right. And so forth. But, uh, you know, the big cities, it seems like less good. And a lot of the people I listen to who, you know, do gaming podcasts or whatever are from the middle of the country, from the Midwest, from Canada, from the South, um, from sort of mid sized cities. Uh, I, I don't know. That's just an observation I've made. I. I don't know. I mean, I've never been to a gaming cafe. There are a few in the town I grew up in that I was always mildly curious about. But I, um, the sense I get is if you go and you're looking to play with people that you don't know, you might get lucky, but you are probably setting yourself up for a less than satisfactory experience because especially with these kind of cooperative games or these heavily themed games where there's sort of a a role play element to them. You got to feel comfortable with the people you're with to want to get into that. Even just to take charge and say, okay, I've got a strategy for how we can win this game. And if nobody knows each other, nobody's going to be comfortable doing that. So again, it's more, it's most fun when you're with people you already kind of know and try and can relax around a little bit. Yeah. And, um, uh, the reason I love Lords of Waterdeep episode, and th- definitely the extended, I never watched the regular one, is because what gets cut out are all of these great side conversations that everyone's having, as usual, which is, I, I highly recommend if you guys watch the tabletop, uh, to watch the extended versions. Will Wheaton is very specific um, about which ones he does extended. It's usually hilarious, like Carcassonne with Kumail Nanjani before he was famous, but who's hysterical. This was like five years ago. Uh, and Nika Harper and Jesse Cox, who are both hilarious internet personalities. They did an extended one for Formula D, which I know you like. They did an extended yeah. one for uh, Waterdeep, uh, Star Trek Catan, which is a lot of fun because Wheaton's just off his rocker with Star Trek references. They did extend them. Anyways, with Waterdeep, uh, at one point Wheaton turns to Rothfuss and he goes, a buddy of mine said recently, because Wheaton was really trying to win water deep like it's his it was his favorite right. game at the time and he wanted to be felicia day and he ha- he rarely wins on his show and yeah, he f- he did what you should never do in euro games which is take an early lead especially in games uh, like water deep where there are mean cards that you can literally fuck people over by giving them quests worth nothing that they have to do um right. and he jumped ahead too quickly and he got a little cocky and they kind of teamed up on him and he blew his top at one point almost felicia yeah. was able to sort of calm him down and it turned into a really funny time um but uh he's he turns to, to rothfuss and he says you know buddy of mine says you can't be a hardcore board game and be competitive and and Rafa says, well, I don't know if I agree with that. He says, I, I want the people to want to win while I'm playing, but not necessarily obsessed with the win itself. Because otherwise, it's not really a competitive game if you're not competing. Um, and we and was like, oh yeah, kind of, and I kind of agree with that perspective. But it's hard to find people in that middle ground who aren't playing totally casually, but are able to 
like I like to talk trash for fun, you know, and maybe it's because like I grew up in sports culture, you know, but like it's fun talking some trash. But yeah, when it's strangers and they're super competitive, it's like you could say anything and set someone off, you know, um, and that that's not fun to me. I'm not talking about real smack talk. I'm just talking about, you know, joshing around a little bit or whatever. I mean, when you play with your buddies, you guys can do that because you know each other well. Um, I just don't have a big friend community in Philly. So that's my real main problem. Um, it would be interesting to be living in New York where I could play with friends. But how, how, do, how do you guys normally play? Do you guys play pretty? straight or do you um you know uh play around with with the game a little bit what do you mean well like i mean will you will you house a rule for example um or Uh, no we usually stick with the rules that we got yeah um i guess it depends on what kind of games you play and this would be a good transition which is before a year and a half ago i had never heard the term euro game before i had no idea what a euro game was and when I first heard about it and first started uh, you know, researching it, I'm like, this is the best thing ever. This is the opposite of Monopoly and Sorry and all of these fuck you games we grew up with where it's all about right. screwing the other player, but more so, the winner usually wins 20% into the game and then it's just yeah. a slog the rest of the time. Euro games are rubber banded. It keeps it close. There's multiple strategies. There's moves you can make that benefit yourself and other players. And so they're over and so an forth. hour and a half. Like, or less or 30 re- minutes. Yeah, that's the real advantage i think modern games have over the classic kind of milton bradley games is yes they they have timers built in yeah yeah people actually made them thinking okay how long would it take to beat this and what can we really expect because fucking uh, monopoly games can take six hours risk can take eight hours and it's not fun for the good for at least the second half you're just waiting for the slow burn until somebody wins um, which is not an enjoyable way to play. Yeah, and I'm looking at at least three heavily themed fantasy or sci-fi uh, original property board games in my basement right now, which are area control games with fighting like Risk that take 90 minutes or less because of built-in mechanisms and so forth, or at least are adjustable. Like I have a big space, uh, like almost like space civ civilization kind of game called Exodus, but you can choose how many tiles to put out. And so that, you know, you can make a much shorter game by not having your galaxy as big or whatever. Um, they they also, you know, in uh, pandemic and even risk and some other series, I think they do the, um, the storytelling, uh, packs yearly packs now called i am blanking on the um the the like the pandemic story ones um pandemic legacy, legacy. Yeah. yeah 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 which is a great model and i've heard risk legacy is great because again yeah, it, puts I, a, it puts a time limit it restricts you to certain areas of the globe uh, there's you know the fighting there's more dynamics like risk is a flawed game just because the rule set is uh, again so janky but with some controls you can make that uh, much more interesting but yeah euro games definitely uh, are are 90 minutes or less sometimes like i said can be 30 40 minutes depending on the game but 
Your games also tend to be very lightly or shittily themed and involve colored meeples and pretty plain art with yep. no writing and symbology because they want to save money and they distribute around these world, these games. They're made in Germany and elsewhere in Europe. It's great. I understand it's hard to do text on you know international games. And so there's this really complex symbology and there's no theme to it. And so unless you are bringing a Felicia Day, Will Wheaton style you know, informal role playing to it in some way, it it just turns into a grind, is my experience. No, I, I agree. Um, you know, the games that I like the most have some some kind of story component and some kind of mild role play element, even if it's as simple as you are CDC people trying to prevent diseases from breaking out. That's enough of a role play to get me more invested in the game than you're just a person and you have to place your your magic pieces in the squares that you think are best to help you win. Um, You know, just the little variation of your pandemic person can do this, mine can do this. And I generally like cooperative games more than competitive games. Although if there's a trader mechanic, I don't have any particular problem with that Mm because I do really enjoy betrayal at the house on the hill even if i've been the traitor twice and lost both times because i couldn't figure out how to i couldn't come up with a strategy to win Um, i mean let's be honest fury of dracula is mostly buying train tickets if you look at the episode (laughs) but again because of the great theming and because of the the characters meaning the actors the personalities that were there you know the the fact that Amy Okuda was really playing up the f- former romance with Dracula and yep. stuff like that, and it became like a Jessica Jones situation, which was really funny. Um, it, just in terms of how they were talking about it, but um, that was fun. But if you, I, I bet you, if you watched the ten minutes of just normal boring gamers play that game, you'd be like, oh my sure. god! I like, I don't know if I'd want to play it. Like that's a perfect example of an episode I love watching, but I'm not sure I'd ever want to play that game. And dude, I I, I do like these Euro games but I'm looking at my collection and most of them are very heavily themed because I feel like they're easier, especially if they're more complicated games. If it's a cool theme like Elder Sign or I have a Vikings miniature one called Blood Rage that won a bunch of awards last year. Right. It's easier to get to the table because it's fun to look at and fun to play, and it allows you to teach more complicated dynamics as opposed to like Five Tribes or Stone Age, which is right. just, uh, which you know has some cool things going on aesthetically, but worker placement type stuff can be really boring to the uninitiated. Uh, that's what I think. You know, if I'm going to play a game, I would much rather play an actual board game where you're sort of progressing towards something. Like I've played. Takedo, and the art mm-hmm. in Takedo is really, really pretty, and it is definitely something that makes it fun to play, even at, if I'm not quite sure how to win with the particular guy that I have. Um, for is people who don't the, know... Is that the Panda one? No. Uh, no, that's Takenoko. Takenoko. Uh, Takedo, oh, okay. for people who don't know, is a game where you're basically tourists in feudal Japan, and you're trying to have the best vacation ever. Oh, like, literally, yeah. that's the, the plot of the game, is you... You either go shopping and try to score points by buying pottery or you go to mountains and try to score points by painting pictures or mm. you go to local shrines and give donations and try to score points that way. Like it's whoever has the best vacation wins. Um, yeah. And the art is really, really cool. It's basically the board game version of Basho's uh, travels through Japan in the 1600s. 
uh, yeah. in the modern days, uh, which I highly recommend, by the way. Uh, great readings. Um, but yeah, I mean, those themes, but, but again, those are ones where the themes and the mechanics really line up, you know? Yes. And that's one thing I'll give Betrayal House on the Hill. Even though the mechanics are a little janky and a little weird, it definitely lines up with what's going on. Um, and I think sort of bringing in theme and bringing in some role-playing elements to some of the games really helps a lot. It certainly helps with replay. Um, I think so. I would think. Um, what are one or two games that you've found to have pretty good replay value? Uh, Monarch replays pretty well. I think Pandemic replays really well. Does um, play, yeah, great. You know, I the thing with a lot of these games that you have to get past is it can take a while to set them up. And the first time you play any of them, they're going to feel awkward because they're they feel complex at first. And there's a bit of a learning curve just figuring out the strategy of what are the things you can do and what are you supposed to do in any given turn. Um, And this is in part where the games that put the effort into making a clear instruction booklet stand out um Mm -hmm. there was one i played that was not a tabletop game just that a friend of mine had where i I think it was called myth or oath i don't know what it was but it was you know it was each round had three stages there was the hero stage then there was phase there was the something in the middle and then the 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 board stage which was called the darkness phase did its thing but it was so unclear what was supposed to happen during each round that we played for three hours, made virtually no progress, and said, you want to just stop? And we did, uh, because it was it was too confusing to figure out what we could do and what we were supposed to do in any given turn. Yeah. Um, and even modern risk-level epic games like Twilight Imperium, right. um, which hardcore gamers, if you watch on the net... Um, swear by but they do admit it's impossible to get it to the table because it's so many pieces it's like a coffin sized box they call it a coffin box it's so many pieces takes forever to set up and can go four or five six hours or more but they just released twilight imperium 4 which while still big and it takes more than an hour and a half they have simplified the rules and the pace of increase the speed of the pace of play and and most uh, fans i know of the more uh, hardcore ti3 like the new one because it's easier to get to the table to play with people um Mm -hmm. if i'm with the right people if i know a game is going to be between two and three hours but i love the theme i love the aesthetic and i like the people i'm playing with i could totally crush a six-pack and play a two and a half hour strategy game and sure the one thing i wanted to mention early on man was that when i was growing up my parents got me computers very very early in in life uh thank god for it they would never let me have consoles (laughs) um and and back then you know people don't know this now because everything on console comes to computer and looks better on computer because computers have always been superior to consoles in terms of power but back then you couldn't get console games i think tomb raider in the late 90s was one of the first console games along with final fantasy 7 to come to computer and i was already out of the game at that point so i was playing Mm -hmm. strategy games and role-playing games i was playing wizardry might and magic but i was also playing civilization i was playing warcraft i I still love civ Civ is great i play civ 5 only computer game i own and i play it all the time which one do you have four beyond the sword i've Um, seen six i love six i think it's great um four i have a uh, my computer is actually 10 years old yeah four is the best it can play okay um yeah i play (laughs) civ 
I play Civ Five. Um, yeah, uh, which runs pretty well on, on older computers. Um, it, you know, each, each one has its advantages. Four, five, and six for sure. It's great. I've been playing um, uh, some Civilization in Space type games like Stellaris and so forth, which I really enjoy. Back oh, in the sorry. day. Um, yeah, Master of Orion was a really famous I space love, I strategy that game. game. That was a great game. Yeah, so uh, Stellaris is just a modern version of Master of Orion. Yeah. You build your own ships, you control systems, you discover things, you find relics, you mine, you get yep. populations. It's fantastic. So, and, and of course, there was Alpha Centauri, which was oh, after yeah. the company that put out Civilization kicked out Sid Meier, who created it. He said, okay, fuck you guys, I'm just going to make my own game. And Civilization ends with you colonizing Alpha Centauri. So everybody knew it was effectively a sequel to civilization. Mm -hmm. He put out that it won a billion awards. The company put out Civ three, which was generally disliked. And then they brought him back for Civ four. And then they did Civ five after earth, which is like a, a spiritual successor to alpha Centauri. Yeah. Um, and, uh, the company, uh, Ended up being uh, called Firaxis, I believe. Firaxis, yeah. And they also put out the XCOM games, which are mm-hmm. uh, turn-based, um, squad-based, kind of scary, like fighting alien invasion, uh, but also hilarious um, turn-based squ- uh, tactics uh, squad-level stuff. So we have individual people, and they have names, and they have skills, and they level up, and if they die, they're dead, and if you have too many veterans die, like, it's over. The extremely hard game. Like, <laughs> really, really high-level difficulty, but super fun. Um, and uh, the strategy games in video games, uh, as a quick aside, have been making a major comeback. Civ Six is one of the most streamed games online. Has sold a <laughs> ton of copies. XCOM 2, and and uh, XCOM War of the Chosen, which just came out the past few months, which has like half the cast of Star Trek The Next Generation do the voices on it. It is amazing. <laughs> um, uh, literally. Um, like, and doing the major characters, too. Uh, so the XCOM 2 series has made a big comeback. Nintendo has made some great ones that are a little bit simplified. And more, like um, There was a Mario one called Rabbids that came out on the Switch this past year, which people love. It's like a Mario turn-based game that actually has some cool mechanics. Um, and just indie gaming in general with, with Steam and other online stores, which make it pretty affordable to get computer games. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and ones like Civ 4, which are a little bit older, but which run on older machines as well and are still amazing you know you can get um i've been able to get strategy games from the 90s for like three bucks you know just to like revisit it um i think they have alpha centauri centauri for like 4.99 on there so anyway so my love of strategy games has totally played in to uh me getting back into board games i think the problem is i like heavy board games so i'm the guy that has trouble getting games to the table because right i'm willing to do the setup before you even get to my house but mm-hmm. it's still going to be two to three hours and there's going to be a good amount of rules. And because the hardest thing is there's no way to learn a game other than playing it. Um, right. And so games like, uh, like Exodus, like the space exploration game, like that needs two or three playthroughs for me to understand the rules. So I need people who are patient enough and into it to play it. And so it just never uh, gets to the, gets onto the table. Um, so anyways, back to games that you, uh, that you enjoy playing. You mentioned Monarch. So Monarch is, um, a great example of what they call micro games. 
And mm-hmm. the only thing that's micro about these games is they come in small boxes. Yeah. But there's tons of gameplay. I have one called Harbor, which they've played on tabletop. Yep. I have one called Welcome to the Dungeon, which was played on tabletop. Yep. Um, Resistance, uh, which is mm-hmm. a social deduction game, comes in a small box and has v- variations. And some of these games are actually distillations of heavy Euro games or big board games. So Harbor completely ripped off a very very acclaimed euro game called lahav okay um spelled l-e hav h-a-v-r-e which is a really 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 uh, intricate and dry looking uh euro game that serious gamers swear by but you could never get someone normal to play with harbor you get these like cute orc characters and there's theme and it comes in a small box and i think there's also something about like Yes, the portability, but also when you bring out a small box, it's really less intimidating um, as yes. opposed to my Blood Rage box with these giant miniatures, which is like this humongous box, which actually Blood Rage is easy to teach, but it looks so big and intimidating with the Viking theme. It just turns people off. If I bring out a funny story along this line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, the other one I really like my favorite Michael Graham uh, is Tiny Epic Galaxies. Um, uh-huh. because there is actually a ton of space exploration stuff, but again, it's all like little cards and little figures and stuff. Um, and it's, it's pretty easy to break out. Go ahead. So I, uh, I got my friends as a present, uh, the dead of winter, which is a zombie survival board game, uh, that was played on tabletop. It's very well regarded. Okay. By and the way, I'm was- sorry. I have to interrupt you just real quick. So, you know, the two ladies on that episode, so you have uh, Ashley Johnson, who's not been on dead cri- of win- not dead of winter. I'm sorry, oh, okay. the other one. Um, <laughs> sorry, there goes no. my story. Yeah, dead of winter, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those two, Dodger Lee and Ashley Johnson. Right, Dodger. Okay, so Dodger is the one Twitch supporter I actually subscribe. I pay for Dodger's channel. That's how much I love Dodger. Um, okay. She does also a lot of work with Jesse Cox, who I love as well, uh, and they do a lot of streams together that are really adorable. Um, she also married a, uh, a, a fellow gamer that they work with, uh, like Bailey and Willingham. But anyways, Ashley Johnson uh, is best known for being a child actress. She was the bl- little baby girl on Family Ties, I want to say. Um, okay. But more recently, she was the voice of, of Ellie in uh, The Last of Us, which most people consider one of the better video game stories of all time. Um, and she's on Critical Role on and off. I don't know yeah. if she's on this season, but she's pretty well, busy. But she tried, they Ashley tried to have Johnson? her on first season. You're talking about Ashley Johnson? or Ashley Johnson. Johnson. Yeah, Ashley Johnson. So she is in the cre- opening credits for Critical Role Season 2, but I am through seven of the eight episodes that have been aired, and she has been in one and a half of them. Yeah. Like, she is... She was pretty much absent for the first and second mini arcs. I don't know what to call them. Like the first one involves investigating a murder at a circus and the other involves a cave of monsters. Uh, I won't say more if people actually watch, but she had no role in the monster cave one and she just shows up at the beginning and the end of the murder at the circus one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a little disingenuous the way they've said that she is a main character because she hasn't been yet. Um, she um, has it, had it, yeah and an interesting side note um, I'm sorry to interrupt your story about Dodger is the first one she, episode she was on of Tabletop was Alhambra and Alhambra right. is a classic Euro game and yeah. she wiped the floor with I remember that everybody 
and they didn't it, like will it looked like was almost ready to like do a redo of the episode because five minutes into the 25 minute episode she was crushing them yep and they you know she she said it was luck but she's like a virtuosic gamer like she's the person who plays dark souls on super hard and can mm-hmm. beat it like she's just one of those people but she's also like one of the foremost internet anime experts and does some really funny yep. and cute videos on anime and stuff like that so she's a great follow and a perfect example of so many will wheaton people are voice actors and internet personalities that come on tabletop which i think is really cool and 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 will certainly very much into video games as well as board games um so sorry man i interrupted your story there you're talking about getting dead of winter for for buddy or buddy got it for you no, I got it for two friends of mine who they're married uh, and they were having a, a, a night. So I got it for them for a late Hanukkah present and they were really excited to play it. Like they really wanted to play it, but there were two problems that became immediately apparent. We didn't start playing until like we all got together at like two and we just hung around talking and chilling out for like four hours so then all of a sudden it's the nighttime and we're trying to set this up and they have, so it's one of these coffin box games where there's a million pizzas you got to punch out and a million decks of cards. You got to tear the plastic off and there's 50 different piles where you have to put all the different resources and stuff. And it's just taking me longer and longer to set it up. Cause I'm, I don't exact, I've never played the game. I just knew how to play it from tabletop mm-hmm. and they obviously have the setup all done beforehand Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just getting later and later. They have a two-year-old girl who is one grabbing things because she's a two-year-old girl and she grabs things. I mean, I'm not really going to begrudge a two-year-old, uh, <laughs> but like she'd pick a thing up and put it somewhere else. She would grab the instruction book <laughs> and hold it with like, I'm not going to begrudge a two-year-old girl. That's a great line. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like she's holding the, like the, uh, instruction manual with like, little baby grip so if i try to take it from her it'll probably tear the page so so i'm doing my best but by the time i get it all set up and explain how it's played and all of that it's basically time for the kid to go to bed which is a i don't have kids so i wouldn't really know this that's not like a 10 minute thing getting a two-year-old to go to sleep is like an hour-long time commitment oh yeah and by then everybody is going home so basically i finished setting it up right in time for everybody to uh, say we got to get going uh, and that was a little disappointing um it almost it would have been better if you had given it to them opened and semi-prepared well yes i but i was also unprepared for how long it would take to set up and yeah. again you know the table where we were going to play had like food and stuff on it so yeah. you know sometimes if you're going to do these kinds of things you got to start it real real early on yeah, I mean, to be fair, Eldritch Horror uh, takes forever to set up. Um, I've gotten it down to the point where I can get it set up in about 20 minutes. Um, which is a I, lot. I've gotten pretty... I mean, I play games sure. that don't take 20 uh, minutes. I'm just, you know, some, I'm saying to some people yeah. that's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's the Pandemic first time around minutes. punching all the pieces out of the, the cardboard exactly. and all of that. That's that's what takes a really long time. You don't think it will, but it really does. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, and... The gameplay is slower because you're going through the instruction manual, making sure you're doing the right thing. You have to explain to people what they can and can't do. Every time I've played Eldritch Horror, I felt more comfortable with the mechanics of it and have had to reference the, the almanac less. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and because Eldritch Horror is fully cooperative, um, as opposed to 
cooperative with a trader. But also, if you screw up one or two small things in Eldritch Horror, it's not that big of a deal. If you screw up one or two small things in Dead of Winter, it seems like it could derail the entire thing. Uh... I mean, I don't know. I, I never got to play. It, well, just so. based on, but based on you watching it, um, just because of the trader mechanic, like Will Wheaton literally was the trader and only lost because he needed one food. So, right. if they missed a food drop at one point, like that, that would be the difference. Yeah, exactly. Whereas an Eldritch Horror, they specifically, for story reasons, make some dumb choices on purpose on the show. Uh, I think once or twice, just what they think is for laughs. One of them really bites them in the butt almost at the end with uh, with uh, Marizan, who is just hysterical. Um, mm-hmm. Those two are buddies, by the way, in real life, like good friends. Um, and I think Wheaton has done a good job of trying to pair up, uh, like bring a pair of friends. So it's like him and Rothfuss are buddies, and he brings in Marizan and, and Steph. Uh, he brings in the last uh, name? Yeah. Well, he brings in uh, Ricky Lindholm and Kate Micucci, who are Garfunkel and Oates. Yeah. Um, now they're doing separate stuff creatively, but at the time that episode was made, they were on, you know, they were working together, and I think they still actually do perform as Garfunkel and Oates together. I think their show got canceled because Lindholm is doing um, uh, another period, I think it's called, which is another yeah uh, Comedy Central show. So yeah, but they're a pair. They had Paul and Storm on together a couple mm-hmm. of times. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and just really quickly for the listeners, uh, what makes Dead of Winter interesting are two main things. Zombies. Um, Well, uh, two main things. Um, (laughs) I'm not a huge fan of zombies. Zombies are one of the main things. (laughs) Okay, so. Zombies are cool. Zombies are fine, but two different main things, somewhat different main things. One is the trader mechanic where there might be a trader and might not. And they build it in such a way where your character has some sort of public goals and some sort of private goals. Right. And even if you're a good guy, similar to in Resistance, how you're not allowed to give out certain information, uh, uh, you know, there's certain things you can't say. And, like, for example, like, you can put fuel in a communal pile, but it's face down, and it gets shuffled, right. and so you don't know who put it there. And so Will Wheaton somehow, uh, as usual, ended up being the traitor um, in that game. Um, and uh, and so it's very tense because you don't know who to trust, and maybe you should trust everyone. The other great mechanic, though, uh, which is really unique to Dead of Winter, and they keep saying they're going to do more from this series, what they call the Crossroads system, which is basically just an advanced version, I think, of the Eldritch Horror storytelling mechanic but just that there's more linearity in the crossroads system it's not just a series of lovecraftian events it's building like betrayal and house on the hill you know it's building a story towards something i think right is sort of an appeal um of that game no i agree um you know and like with you know again these character archetypes that you play in Dead of Winter, they're not like super deep characters, but I do like just the variation of this person is good at killing zombies, this person is good at finding food, this person is good at organizing barricade construction at the home base. So, you know, having not everybody have the exact same set of skills at the beginning is fun, in part because I do like role play, even if I don't really have the time commitment, the time I would need to actually play a true role playing game, which the biggest hang up I have with those is simply the length and the need for regularity. Like I have been asked by friends to join D&D groups, and I think I would enjoy that. 
but they are, you know, predicated on me having a consistent schedule, which I don't have. You know, my schedule does not make it possible to say, okay, every Saturday I can be here to do this because mm-hmm. sometimes I'm going to be working on a Saturday. And if I don't show up, that kind of fucks everybody over. So two problems with with D&D. And I tried to do one online with friends for a while, and it was fun over Skype, but we're like different sides of the country and stuff, so it just became very difficult. I, I think you got to be with the people you're playing to enjoy it. Well, to be fair, I mean, uh, it was Adam Tuck was the was the dungeon master, and he would draw all the maps and like crafted pieces and had cameras on it. I mean, it was pretty dope, but mm-hmm. it, it was really the time difference and work schedules because it was really fun. Well, but yeah, it's way better in person, obviously. But here, the problem with D and D is a there's so many hardcore D and D people that want to just play D and D, even though arguably there are dozens of better role-playing systems and themes out there in my opinion uh sure. and dungeons and dragons um fake cores one which maybe we can talk about um you know i mean even like the star wars ones are interesting if you're into star wars they've got some cool dynamics uh but basically systems that don't just revolve around rolling a d20 die over and over and over again yeah um definitely. So you, where you're doing combat for an hour and a half which is super boring um right Second problem with D&D, again, uh, people are afraid to bend the rules. Uh, and if you don't have people who are really role-playing their role, again, it becomes just about combat and rolling dice and not that interesting. And the third problem is related to that, which is, you know, for, for, for you D&Ders out there, just watch what Matt Mercer does with Critical Role and the fact that they have guests that come in and out of their campaigns occasionally. Mm-hmm. You can do those campaigns where not everyone is at every session, but you need to be flexible and you need to be open-minded and you need to, you know, game the rules a little bit. Um, right. And you need to be able to be a good enough storyteller for, you know, when Ashley Johnson comes in and out every six episodes, like I don't, I haven't seen it recently, but I did watch some from last season and like they did a pretty good job when she would be there of like bringing her, roping her back in to it. And there are a lot of systems again that have more interesting dynamics that allow for more flexibility than Dungeons and Dragons, which is very archaic and arcane, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, uh, you know, and I personally wouldn't be opposed to playing a guest character if they needed somebody to do that. But again, that gets back to my, what I said earlier, which is my sense is that Matt Mercer is an exceptional game master who really, in part because he is naturally creative, because he's an actor or a voice actor, has a very expansive way of thinking and is able to come up with this really in-depth series of small campaigns tied into whatever the larger narrative arc of this series is. And because of that, it is easy to build something uh, malleable enough to have people slip in and out if they can only show up every once in a while. You know, Ryan Macklin created Fate Core, so of course he knows how to make a good Fate Core, you know, fantasy, and he knows how to work with the players to draw a good fantasy out of them. Cause in that episode they do as much to create the world as he does, which I think makes it fun for everybody. Mm-hmm. But most people aren't Matt Mercer or Ryan Macklin or Will Wheaton or Chris premise. And so what you are going to get, you're not going to get critical role in all likelihood. I'm sure if you run enough dungeons, you'll get good at it. But you know, I, I do think sometimes, like you said, you can get this, 
uh, idealized idea of what this game, what these games are going to be like, and then what you experience is going to be something a little bit less. And you have to decide if it's still fun and worth doing. Um, Because if you're expecting to recreate the tabletop experience you watch on YouTube, you probably won't. You have to have an unbelievable amount of endurance and creativity and patience to be a game master. Um, Yeah. It's hilarious, too, because Matt Mercer looks and acts... It sounds exactly like Adam Tuck, who is an amazing game master. They even dress the same with the shirts and the bracelets and everything. Like, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe when I first saw Matt Mercer. I was like, oh my God, this is like bizarro Adam Tuck. Also helps that Matt Mercer is the most accomplished voice actor of his generation at the moment. So he can do voices and it's not like a big stretch for him. Although he's pretty restrained on it from what I've seen. Like, he, you know, he, he picks his battles, um, which is great. But also, yeah, I mean, games like, I can't remember the fake court example uh, exactly but some of these systems you don't need someone who's a full-time game master or even some of them there isn't a dedicated game master and you're all role-playing together um right and also have things built in which i think fake court does if you want it where, where again you can limit times and do short story campaigns that are like self-contained it don't have to go on for years and years mm-hmm um, and again, I think this is where there are some good compromises. Like they play a game called Mice and Mystics, which they call an RPG in a box where most of the gameplay stuff is already laid out for you. And you just sort of, you don't really need a game master. You have a ton of role playing game elements that take you through a fairly linear, well story that's already laid out for you. And, you know, they are designed to be easier for novices. They are designed to be, something that you can do in shorter segments. Um, and I, again, I think that's a good compromise between like a true RPG that you really, I think have to be like one type of personality to really enjoy. Um, in part, cause you have to get over a little bit. The, there is a silliness to all of this, um, that I think is unavoidable. Uh, you know, but I think these RPGs in a box or maybe they, they lessen that a little bit. Yeah, I, I think that's a misnomer. I understand what Wheaton was going for there, and he didn't invent the term, but it's really a fantasy dungeon crawl in the box. Um, there's not really any role-playing that you need to do, again, if you don't want to. Um, sure, I mean, but, you take on a role. That, you know, yeah. you are the wizard mouse well, this or is, the king mouse. This is made in video whatever. games, which is... Right. Would you rather have a game like Horizon, Witcher, or Mass Effect in which it's a made character, a voiced character who has an identity who -hmm. you're playing, or like a mute character, which I want to move to Dragon Age, the first Dragon Age game, Origins, which is still the best by far, in which the game is based on Dragon Age Origins, the RPG game they play, where you are a mute character, and you can see yourself, and you can design yourself and pick races and stuff, old school RPG style, but you're not actually talking, and so you put yourself in it. It's like the whole movie thing of like, Sometimes shitty lead movie characters are almost shitty by design because they want the viewer to be that person. Um, yes. You know, like people yeah, always intentional bland the, characters. Right. Like Twilight is usually the example that's used. Uh, and why girls love the book Twilight is in the book is even more bland apparently than Kristen Stewart because they wanted girls to take on that role mentally. But the men are all gorgeous and very tons of personality and, you know, very well described and so forth. Um, I've never read any of them, but I do know that it's probably more fair to say 
Bella is a bland character. Kristen Stewart has gone on to have an interesting acting career post Twilight. Yeah. No, I'm saying, I'm saying wants, the Kristen yeah. Stewart portrayal of Bella. In the, in, I've yes. only seen the first Twilight movie. I've never read the books. I'm just saying what I've seen heard. Any, so you got one on me. Yeah, but I'm just um, saying people use that as an example of in sort of in modern movies. Um, I mean, Captain America could easily have been that, but Chris Evans has taken it to another right. level. Um, but you know what I'm saying? So yeah, that, some people have yeah. said Harry Potter is actually a kind of blank slate character oh yeah um, Hermione's a much more interesting character than harry potter and yeah, so are, be, yeah but that's because they want the audience to make it easier to pretend to be harry potter mm-hmm. and so if you know what harry potter's favorite food is and you don't like that food then you are less likely to identify as harry yeah. potter Vigo, you're also less likely yeah. to buy a ticket to go watch harry potter oh, so yeah. some of this is just financial but you know Viggo Mortensen's Aragorn is way more dimensional than in the books. I mean, Aragorn right. is a straight up one dimensional good guy with very little personality in the books. And actually, I didn't love Viggo's portrayal the first time I saw The Fellowship of the Ring, but on repeat viewings, I, I think he's absolutely brilliant because if he had too much uh, personality, it would not be true to the character, but the, he adds a darkness and a sensitivity and a sadness and so forth, even like a femininity that you don't right. get in the character in the books but the aragorn in the books is definitely who you're supposed to be mm-hmm. as a kid right i mean you put yourself in those mm-hmm. shoes um so while i mention it so the dragon age uh they did the rpg um, right the dragon age rpg hasn't been that successful uh, past initial printings but they have used that system including in titan's grave which is i want to talk about in a minute and maybe our, our sure. last major topic um yeah so in the first the last episodes of the first season he had four guests on as opposed to just three um and they did uh, uh the dragon age rpg which is based on the role-playing game and and i can tell you having played through the game uh, i think twice and loving it it was very 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 uh, devotional uh to the material um mm-hmm. and uh if anything i was bored by the episode because i had already played through that campaign in video <laughs> game form but they had great personalities there i mean yeah you had chris guys- hardwick who's you know the master of the nerdist empire you had sam witwer who's a really really just big personality and actual acting and voice acting you had the one hilarious dude from the big bang theory kevin sussman yeah who is i think should be better known for his role as the absolute weirdo with magic powers in wet hot american summer when he was yes a kid. i was going to bring that up he is that same guy uh, yeah. who summons wind at the end to deflect a meteor. Yeah. Um, but like in the famous Will Wheaton episode of Big Bang Theory, which is a terrible, terrible show, my friends. <laughs> I'm sorry if you like it, but it twists I've what never nerd culture is. It mocks the wrong things and in the wrong ways. And it's just I, not funny. You're not the first person that I've talked to that has said that that the show makes the joke being being a nerd. And he pointed me to... So there's another show called Community that is a very like beloved show by the mm-hmm. people who watched it. And there is one episode of Community where they play D&D together. And m- the people I know who have watched both said this is a much more – it's funny, but it's also a lot less mean to the people who are playing it. Like I don't like Big Bang Theory because I, I think Sheldon is a fucking asshole. I, I think he's such a dick to everybody he knows. And the fact that he's smart isn't a good justification for being so unkind to everybody. Um, and he, but whatever. 
in real life, Jim Parsons is almost proud of the fact that he knows nothing about nerd culture. Like I'm sure he wears he's a it lovely a human being. I'm I, sure. I, I'm sure. Um, and he was great in Hidden Figures. Or um, he kicks puppies. I have no idea. I don't know anything <laughs> about. And this is why I don't ride for yeah. any of these people. But I don't know them in real life. So. But you're um uh you're right about community. Nerds love community, and. I mean, that's the thing with Seth MacFarlane. Like, I am not the biggest fan of Seth MacFarlane stuff, but he is an honest-to-God nerd. And so yeah. when he parodies nerd stuff in his various properties... And by the way, I've heard that his Star Trek show isn't actually a satire, but it's like an actual show. It is. Yeah. No, I I was surprised how much I liked the Orville in the end. Um, that's what I heard. I think I said this on a segment that got cut, uh, but... One, it's not mean. Like, Family Guy is really mean, and it is not mean at all. It's not mean to Star Trek fans. It doesn't mock you for liking this thing. And they put at least a little effort into actually coming up with a universe with a consistent aesthetic and an ideological core of who these people are. You know, there's some slacker grown-up jokes that, that you know, they, these guys could stand to all grow up a little bit. And, and the first episode has way too many scenes where he's just being mean to uh, Adrian Palicki, who plays his ex-wife. They get away from that as the show goes on and the show is all the better for it. Um, but the Orville is, it is a show made by somebody who liked Star Trek, who likes Star Trek. Um, and his Star Wars parodies are quite funny. Very funny. I mean, yeah, the, the family guy, Star Wars are, are, yeah. I enjoyed the first two, the third one. He literally says in the, in the crawl, look guys, they wouldn't let me make Ted. If I didn't agree to make this one, I'll pay you back later. Just let's get through this. So he kind of admits we oh, have yeah. asked this one. I mean, it's a fine um, line. I mean, Seth green is like one of the f- most expert Star Wars minds you will ever meet. And he roasted mostly the prequels on his uh, show. Um, Robot Chicken? Yeah, over the last 10 years. And George Lucas loved it so much that he hired Seth Green to do a parody show that they had to can because Lucas sold Star Wars to Disney and Disney didn't want to do it, at least for now. <laughs> and so they, there's a produced show by, produced by George Lucas and written by Seth Green uh, that's like a, that takes Robot Chicken stuff but does, I think, live action or at least full animation type episodes but does a similar thing. So it's a fine line. I think Seth MacFarlane overcompensates like it's coming from a good place when he mocks some nerd stuff the way the South Park guys do, for example. Like, nerds love South Park, and they make fun of World of Warcraft and everything on South Park. But nerds that I know love South Park. The South Park video games are supposedly super fun and hilarious, um, and so forth. I think, yeah, I mean, it's a fine line. Like, people who say, I love Star Wars, but... If they say, oh, the only real Star Wars movies are episode four and five, everything else is trash and doesn't count. Like, Will Wheaton is like that. It's, which is fine. That's a fine opinion, but it's a, you know what I mean? Like, even among nerds, it's a fine line between being mean as to what other people find nerdy um, and so forth. And overall, Wheaton, I think, does a good job of being inclusive as a personality on the show. Um, and with that, why don't we lead into what, what I think is... Uh, the greatest thing to come out of Tabletop, other than a handful of my favorite episodes, which is the Titan's Grave RPG, and which is part of the reason I can't watch Critical Role, because I almost just want to rewatch Titan's Grave, because it's much shorter and so tight in a structured world with beautiful art and four personalities who I really like. Um, I 
before you started watching the RPG episodes, Matt, I, I didn't know how much you were into RPGs. I did not, I don't think I knew you watched Titan's Grave until well after the fact. Um, was that like a conscious decision? Like, I'm going to watch a 10 episode RPG show right now? Or it was like, I love Tabletop and Will Wheaton's presentation, and so I'm just going to check it out and see what happens. Mostly just because of how funny it was. Not, not really because of the mission or any of the gameplay stuff. I mean... Chris Hardwick was kind of being a dick, but on repeat watchings, it's funny to just watch him make Will Wheaton uncomfortable, and you can tell how close they are as friends as that's happening. So For sure. Yeah, so it was totally cool with all that. And uh, what's his name again? I'm forgetting it from Big Bang Theory. He's Kevin so funny. Sussman. It was just great. His smell sense yeah. that he keeps <laughs> pulling out like saves their life like numerous times, and uh, it was pretty hilarious. But Will Wheaton being a major 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 rpg nerd really wanted to do an rpg sub-series and they they work together with some of the people who made dragon's age and using their dice rolling mechanics and they brought in some artists to do original artwork in a combination of science fiction and fantasy which i know you and i both love and i wish we saw more whether it was official ip or not some more combinations of science fiction fantasy like dune for example which was that star wars is kind of that but titan's grave was a really unique combination of that and they invented a world for a 10 episode one hour per episode so 10 hours of uh, rpg uh, uh, uh universe that would be gone through by two men and two women from the voice acting uh and internet world who are all really cool and interesting people i remember watching titan's grave man and being like there's no way i'm gonna like this show and totally falling in love with the whole thing. Can you talk a little bit about it and uh, what, what, what your thoughts were um, in the beginning and as you watched the Titan's Grave sort of sub-series to uh, Tabletop? Sure. I, so the, the four actors who, who do it, and obviously Will is the game master, Alson Hayslip, Bailey, Yuri Lowenthal, who one of his voice credits is the Dragon Age game that this is sort of like a spinoff vaguely of. So he already had a natural connection to this property. And then Hank Green, who isn't an actor, as far as I can tell. I think he's like a video blogger and maybe like a Twitch guy. He's a writer. Um, Yeah, he's a writer, behind-the-scenes producer guy. Yeah. Sure, and he does play a female character. uh, So that the campaign is three... It's a a female human with robot parts, a female... Sarian, which is like a lizard creature and a female half elf, half dwarf, um, which I have got to think that early on when Dungeons and Dragons was a thing, people weren't really thinking about like they didn't create characters with dual identities or mixed or fluidic identity. And I'm betting now there's a lot more of that because in critical role, I'm seeing the same stuff with, you know, characters whose you know, there. If you're a human, maybe you've got like, you know, like Laura Bailey's character on Titan's Grave is a human who was raised by Saurian. So again, it's this sort of multiple identity character, and I'm betting all of that is probably a newer thing in RPGing. Uh, which you know, that's all great. Uh, um, but I, that was one thing that sort of struck me. So yeah, it's this. It's a fusion world where there's magic and warriors and all of the archetypes of D and D, but there's also but science and yeah, energy science, and yeah, cyborgs, and lasers, yeah. and uh, you know they they meet a, a robot keg in the first episode. 
Um, so, I, I mean, to me, this was like perfect because I like hard fantasy, but I probably like sci-fi a little bit more. Um, and so, and the fusion I thought was really cool. Um, and it's also one of my biggest issues with Critical Role is that I don't mm-hmm. think it looks that good because it is there's the screen is split into four cameras. One is on three of the players. One is on three more. One is on Matt Mercer, the DM, and one is on a graphic of the character's stats, or sometimes they show a map, but it's very, I'm sure there's a lot of money put into the production, but I don't think it looks as good as Titan's Grave does, where you just have four people sitting around a table, and then all of that art that they intersperse really makes it compelling looking and visually really interesting. Um, Totally. But you know, also, and it helps. Yeah. also, Critical Role is what well over a hundred episodes that are many, many hours a piece, as opposed to Titan's yeah. Grave, which was ten episodes, one hour a piece, or less. Some of them, I think, are more like just forty-five minutes or so, mm. um, which is also nice because there is something daunting about looking at a Critical Role episode and being like, "Do I want to commit four hours to this right now? And if not, when exactly am I going to stop?" I mean, if they're in combat for two hours there's not really a natural stopping point uh in that episode and it can get a little bit uh intimidating and i think in general one of the things that turns people off to dnd is it's a little intimidating until you play it a few times because there are all these different rules and there's all these different types of dice and there's all you know to the point that the critical role people have to look up how their own moves work on a fairly regular basis because even they're not totally sure of all the intricacies Titan's Grave is much simpler. You just roll your standard D6, which is a six-sided die, the kind that you've all been playing with since we started playing Monopoly as four-year-olds. Normal dice, yeah. Right, and you roll more than one for some things and only one for others. And if you get doubles, you get the stunt thing, which is also pretty easy to figure out, and it's a cool gimmick. I love Um, stunting. I, I begged... Adam, my games master, to bring in stunting to D&D, and he refused to do it. I think it's... Well, I, the sense I get is if you roll a true 20 in D&D, you can... Like, some special stuff happens, but it's just, like, ex- an extra hit or something. So I don't know. It'd be harder to bring that in, I think, with a game where you're rolling different die for different actions. It's easier when you're just rolling three dice every yeah. action. But the point when you stunt, and by the way, people, a stunt is, so in the Dragon Age system, which they use in Titan's Grave, you roll three normal dice. But one of the dice is red or black or some different color. And if that die hits a number that one of your other dice hits, then it gets an extra bonus, essentially. I think if it's you roll any set of doubles... Yeah, uh, right. Any set of doubles, but then the um, the stunt die determines how powerful it is. So right. if you roll two sixes with your white dice, but then a one with your red die, you technically stunt, but it's not very powerful. But right. if w- you roll three fives, for example, it's extremely powerful. Right. Basically, the number on the red die is, think of it as just a set of bonus points and that you have to spend immediately and yeah. when you play, you have a list of what the different things your character can do is and how much they cost. So yeah. if you have five points, you can spend them all on one five-point thing, or you could do a three and a two. I, I suppose you could do a one five times if you wanted sure. to. I don't 
I don't know how effective that would be, but you yeah. could do it that way. Well, and, um, but this goes back to our previous discussion about what's important about role-playing games, which is telling a story, which is the reason the stunt system worked great in Titan's Grave was because it allowed the player to tell a bit of a story about yeah. how things happened with their weapon and how they killed a creature. And you're Lewenthal, who rolled arguably as bad or worse than Will Wheaton, which is almost impossible. <laughs> Yuri Lewenthal rolled horribly. He picked it up in the second half, but yeah, for yeah. the first five or six episodes, he was pretty... It was really bad, including like avenging his brother and like missions yeah. where all he needed was like a basic win uh but because of the stunt dice and because of the mechanic and because will wheaton is a generous and great uh, gm you know right. they, they they used it as an opportunity to be like you know like allison hayslip's character you know she was like a rogue you know half elf half dwarf shooting the bow throwing bombs and stuff and and she rolled pretty well and so when she rolled the stunt she got to talk about how that stunt was used and that to mm-hmm. me is way more important than like the statistics destruction that something you know what i mean like For does sure. on something and then the thing that was a cool idea and i wish it had just happened a little more but there's no way to control it is if you roll three sixes you create what's called a legendary stunt you get to make up this extended story that gets told forever in the annals of this this imaginary world the problem is it only happened twice in season one and one was while trying to fix a, a robot keg so there wasn't like a whole lot <laughs> they could really do to embellish that. So I think if that show ever comes back and nobody has said definitively, it never will. So, you know, I continue to hold out like a tiny bit of hope. There might someday be a season two. Maybe we'll see some more interesting stuff. So let me tell you my theory about why critical role is so popular. And the easy answer is, you know, nerd culture is more pervasive than most people think it is. And that is definitely the case, for sure. The fact that tens of thousands of people watch Critical Role live and hundreds of thousands to millions watch it after the fact on VOD, Video On Demand on YouTube or Twitch. And by the way... Congratulations to Geek and Sundry for airing these episodes live with minimal commercial breaks. That's what Will Wheaton wanted <laughs> with Tabletop, mm-hmm. and the reason we're not getting more Tabletop is because they didn't listen to them. Um, but they are doing it with Critical I get the role. sense Legendary, which bought Geek and Sundry or, or something, just their dicks, and he didn't want to work with them anymore. Um, well, it's it's a giant Chinese corporation, which, which operates like any major international corporation, which is just right. monetizing things. But... I listened to the co-optional podcast, which is Dodger Lee, who you know, which is Jesse mm-hmm. Cox, who you've seen, and Total Biscuit, right. British guy who's the most famous like StarCraft shoutcaster of all time and has millions of followers online. Is awesome. Yeah, I've heard of him. I think he showed up in one. He was on King episode. of Tokyo. Yeah, he was yeah. on King of Tokyo episode, which I played. That game is not that fun. No, but but it's a great <laughs> it, it's a great uh, uh, every man game kind of thing, and for sure. kids and stuff. But yeah, I agree with you. But the point being. He loves Will Wheaton and Star Trek and Star Wars and stuff. And, you know, it was great that all the co-optional crew ended up on there. Uh, and he, he's the head of the podcast community. But anyways, the point being, I listen to that as a podcast, even though they YouTube it. 
even though I can download it a few days afterwards as an audio podcast, I will right. open the YouTube and then put it on the uh, control center screen or whatever on my iPhone, even mm-hmm. while I'm driving, and not watch it at all while I'm driving and just listen to it as a podcast. And if you have YouTube Red, which I do recommend to you people out there because I do support these YouTube- YouTubers, if you can afford YouTube Red, get it. You can listen to it without even having YouTube open with your screen off on your phone, and you can listen to it as a podcast. And I honestly think, man, people are listening to Critical Role as a podcast as much as they are watching and i think that is part of the appeal and part of why they're doing so well because i don't think people are sitting there watching five hours of critical role i think they're listening to it and and doing different things i don't know how you feel about that interpretation i mean i think that's definitely some of it i I mean there's a lot of related material to that show that they wouldn't be able to do if it wasn't popular there is a Basically, a critical role after show called Vox Machina, where literally Vox they have Machina. people, yeah. yeah, yeah, where they have people like tweeting at them questions about the other things. So they are sitting around talking about the time they previously played Dungeons and Dragons. So I guess there's definitely a a uh, a market for that. Um, I would also be curious to know, um, like each of these people probably has their own like group like laura bailey i'm looking at her twitter feed she has two hundred and nineteen thousand followers i'm betting if i go to matt mercer's page i'll find that i'm looking that up right now he has two hundred and ninety four thousand followers and he so if each of these people with their own twitter following who probably a lot of their twitter followers follow all their friends but there is clearly this core group that are just devoted to these people and will at least give a chance to anything these people do so you know if you already are a fan of laura bailey and travis willingham and matt mercer and ash johnson and whoever else and they say hey we're all going to get together and play Dungeons and dragons even if you're not the biggest D fan which i'm not like i haven't played a dungeon D game since i was 12 yeah i'll watch that just to watch them interact with each other because i like watching people do things that that are they're passionate about and what's fascinating is, if you look at Ashley Birch, who's not right. on Critical Role, obviously, yeah. but is in this community, how many followers do you think Ashley Birch has? Um, she's been around for a while, so I would guess over half a million. 106,000. That's okay. it. All right, and so that's actually a little less. Mercer Ray has a hundred. It is because Ashley Birch doesn't do other shows. She just does voice acting. She writes for Nickelodeon and other stations. She's right, very high profile in this whole community, but she's not as public as some of these other people. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at Dodger or Jesse Cox, they're well over half a million. Total Biscuit okay. is n- closer to a million and so forth. So a lot of this has to do with the public persona of the whole thing. Um, I will argue that uh, uh, Laura Bailey, like Dodger... Uh, well, Ween has 3.2 million followers, by the way, and I'm pretty sure he will do his part to also promote Critical Role. In part because he who? has... Will Wheaton. Oh, we 3.2 yeah. million Twitter followers, and doesn't yeah. he run Geek and Sundry, or isn't he one of the, the, the creative heads of it? Uh, no, he specifically only wanted to do Tabletop. Oh, okay. Um, well, Felicia, Felicia Day has Day three million followers. Yeah, she has yeah. three million followers. So, yeah. you know, if somebody with three million followers says, go watch this show, a lot of them are going to go watch that show. 
Yeah. Yeah. And it just depends what kind of presence you want to have online. Um, right. But the fact that Laura Bailey has that many followers, I can guarantee you her and her hubby, Travis Willingham, and everybody else did not have that many followers one, two, three, four years ago. Um, and the fact that Critical Role is so um, successful, I mean, look, again, I think we can agree that Titan's Grave was partially successful because Will Wheaton handpicked the people that were on it. It was only four people. It was a brand new universe. It was gorgeous artwork and amazing mm. world building. And it was only 10 one hour or less episodes. So it's far less of a commitment. But you know me, man. This is right. exactly my argument, actually, now that I think about it. Sorry to get on a pulpit here why i love movies over you know tv shows because i can watch a two-hour movie over and over again over the years i'm not gonna watch a 93 episode television show over and over again over the years and so titan's grave was like my my movie version of rpgs whereas critical role moves so slowly to me even though i love everybody involved that it's it's hard for me to stay engaged with it no, I, I would agree. Um, although, you know, glancing at the numbers for what Titan's Grave did, Critical Role has had episodes that have done much better. Like, yeah. I don't think a single Titan's Grave episode cracked a million viewers. Although, season two, keep in mind, uh, Titan's Grave and, uh, and Tabletop also broadcasted live on Geek and Sundry, which is not that's registered true. on YouTube. So, But yes, yeah, yeah. There, but there, I, there but are I board think game shows. Probably yeah. correct. I was going to say there there are shitty board game shows that have big followings that are almost right. as watched as tabletop, but not nearly as influential. I don't care how many watchers this says on the screen. There's a difference between opening a file and watching it for a couple minutes and watching an entire tabletop show. And what I was right. going to say, by the way, is YouTube does do something very progressive, which is that it doesn't reward you for the length of your show, but it rewards you for the the length that people watch your show so when total biscuit does a 40 to 60 minute playthrough of some new real-time strategy game people watch it or listen to it from beginning to end and so he gets paid bank and so people must be watching or listening to critical role well into the show to be generating the income that they seem to be uh, generating uh yeah i if that makes sense Sure. I mean, I, I don't have the numbers on that. I have no idea, but it seems to be a self-sustaining thing because as far as I can tell, I mean, Felicia Day acts too, but this seems to be her principal source of income. So it must generate enough to, in conjunction with, I know she had a kid. Is she married well, to somebody? She has a kid. She's not talking about the baby daddy. Um, she okay. did have a fling care. with Nathan Fillion at some point, which they don't talk about, but it's definitely not the baby daddy as far as I know. Um, she's okay, well, on, if she's on her own, then that, that yeah. further is evidence of my point that Geek and Sundry must generate enough money for her to be able to be a, a single mom. Which Maybe. She's the best-selling author. She makes a good amount of money on her books. Um, she uh, is on The Magicians. She uh, has been on other television shows. She's on uh, Mystery Science Theater, which got renewed. That's for true. I YouTube, forgot about that. That Netflix. probably paid pretty well. I forgot. I forgot she was on uh, MST3K. Yeah, um, with a show Jonah Ray, who's a nerdist guy, who's part of her network, yeah. and with Patton Oswalt, who's you know a really respected comedian. Yep. Um, uh, Jonah Ray also 
yeah, he's a nerdist guy, and uh, although they just changed the name of the podcast, and then he does the after show for Star Trek uh, Discovery. But w- what I loved about Titans Grave was that because the uh, actors uh, were so invested in their characters. First mm-hmm. of all, Wheaton did a brilliant thing, which was have them all have deep seated secrets that would only be revealed well into the campaign. Yeah. No, that worked well. And I don't Critical know. Critical Role does that a little bit, but it, yeah, you know. but it's hard to do with when you have a thousand episodes. But at the same time, I wish Dungeon Masters uh, or Game Masters did this more because every single secret, or at least three of the four of the secrets of Titan's Grave, ended up being really dramatic when they came out um, as part of the campaign. And this goes, by the way to my inability to discern when I watch tabletop episodes that I've seen multiple times and I watch behind the scenes, I can't tell where the interviews are in be- during the episode. Like, I could argue that the, all the tabletop interviews during the episodes happen at the end of the episode, and they're just pretending like it's happening during the middle of the episode, but I don't know for sure. They do a great job of hiding that. But certainly in Titan's Grave, they did have secrets that was part of the campaign that would be revealed later, whether it had to do with something physical about their body or about their family members or about their history or whatever. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I'm... My hunch is that they they either stop the gameplay at some distinct point and like maybe they do a couple of breaks for interviewing or they do it all at the end. Like I, I don't I don't think they're playing and then everybody is running off to do interviews all at once. So I'm going to guess they all do them at the end or they do them like a little bit later. So they watch like maybe what they do is they play. And then they watch the video of them playing so they can refresh their memory what thoughts they had. And then they do their interviews after that. Um, yeah. Like, look, I know for sure if you watch the extended episodes and you hear Will Wheaton constantly cursing at his producers for trying to stop the show and do interviews, they definitely right. do one set in the middle for sure. Yeah. But I think they would have to because these things yeah. take, you know, what is the ex- how long is the extended things usually go i know that will wheaton was doing two of these a day and it was going on like 12 to 14 hours at, you know for weeks at a yeah. time and it was he was losing his mind because of how much production there was so yeah there it, it takes a long time even if it's a 30 minute episode yeah no that sounds right um, but but for example so i was re-watching recently because of dodger i was re-watching the alhambra episode and you know there's she's they're interviewing dodger and she's like i've never played this game before i literally have never played this game right before she starts kicking all of their asses right and so it, you know it, it's it's like all reality tv shows it's hard to know how much manipulation is going on um or in dead of winter which we talked about you know like when they were giving the interviews did they know will was the the traitor you know because during the game you could tell that they did not think will was the traitor during dead of winter he did a great job of putting it off him yeah um that's a fair point i i don't know the answer to that 
Yeah. Um, but it's great. It's just a great production thing. But the thing about Titans Grave, like I said, was because they knew it was a limited amount of time, it's, you know, it, it, it's always like you want to uh, want more rather than regretting having too much in anything in life. And the fact that, like, you could tell they were doing Titans Grave two to three episodes at a time in the 10 episodes, mm-hmm. they would get so mad when Will would end an episode, you know, and you could tell they weren't going to do it for a week or whatever. Yeah. And they were so pissed about it you could tell how into it they were and so i don't know how laura bailey who was a part of that who's a part of critical role and you know is a major connective tissue how you know how they transfer that enthusiasm over to something that's so much more time consuming yeah that i'm gonna assume they shot like maybe over three days or something like that because if you look at the clothing they wear they do change their outfits but mm. not every episode there, are, there is continuity between how yeah. they're dressed. No, they so do two to three at a time. Multiple episodes a day. So yeah. I'm betting. Yeah, I'm betting it was like three episodes a day for th- or or something for maybe three or four days. I yeah. think. Well, because episode nine out of ten is literally Will Wheaton just telling lore stories about their characters, and then Which, there's a long episode ten with all the final battles and stuff. So that was one episode. The first two or three was an episode. Yeah, I think it was probably four shooting sessions. I could be wrong. Probably, and I would bet they're in pretty short order. I have to be honest. I have rewatched Titans Grave a few times. I generally just skip episode nine because. It's all like nightmare images and stuff for people who don't know what we're talking about. So like I get that you people get attached to their characters, but I just can't see having fun like being told you have to choose whether or not this guy shoots your dad or your mom in the face in front of you. Like that just to me is not enjoyable at all and I wouldn't want to that's not the degree of commitment I would want to make to a, a I an agree RPG. With you. That's the so episode I, I listened to one. the least. But also, yeah. Will Wheaton is a great storyteller if you've listened to he him is. read audiobooks. And so that would be like a total almost podcast episode where you're just listening to it and not, you know, paying full attention or whatever, which is such yeah. a, a fascinating thing with YouTube. Um, let's sidebar really quickly and then we'll head towards the end here. Man, I watch tons of YouTube, and the fact that I'm getting back into video games and Will Wheaton is part of this whole situation, meeting the people that he's had on that I love so much, um, including people we've talked about, you know, but also just not having a great, you know, gaming scene here, but I can game with friends that are around the country playing video games and stuff like that. I, I watch a ton of YouTube. I don't mind the c- short commercials. It, it really doesn't bother me. Um, I've tro- I've trouble with long television shows. Um, I feel like tabletop was kind of revolutionary in terms of providing content on YouTube. Um, what's your feeling about YouTube as a delivery system for media at this point? I think it's fine. Um, I I think. I think it's attempts uh, – YouTube has tried on a few occasions to have, like, fiction series the way, like, Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime does. And the sense I get is that those have all been largely unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. So I don't necessarily know that it's the right format for that kind of programming. But this kind of stuff, these extended series that are very personality-driven – I think it's probably pretty much tailor-made for that because, you know, YouTube has always sort of been this thing where anybody can go on and just point a camera at their face and do whatever they want. 
And these really advanced shows like Tabletop are largely just very complex versions of that same thing. You know, it's, hey, everybody, here's a camera of me doing a thing I already do. Come watch me. Um, mm. And I'm not saying that, like, judgmentally. I, I think if that's the kind of stuff you like to watch, go watch it. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that's where YouTube is always going to have its most success. Because I think when it's tried to do shows, those shows have not really been all that. They don't make much of a cultural impact. They tend not to last. I think they did try to do a like a, a sci-fi parody, like Star Trek parody, that flopped. And I can't think of any other attempts, which means whatever they have done has been even like weaker. So I think this kind of stuff of these just personality-driven programming that are more thematic than narrative are probably always going to be where this this medium does the best yeah and arguably the the uh netflix original series haven't been as successful or claimed as they used to be um for various reasons i will sure, say, but they've had plenty yeah. of of pretty good ones that people will sure remember I mean, yeah you, and and YouTube if it's not netflix that. yeah i mean fucking handmaid's tale didn't that win the emmy for best drama so that's that's hulu hulu but hulu is is much closer to netflix than it is to youtube so i think you agree with me there yes 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 absolutely i think youtube has better reality tv than reality tv is my thing i mean the reason I listen to so many video game casters isn't because of video games. It's because people involved in video games, men, women, people of color, and so forth, are just so much less pretentious, but uh, also unashamedly nerdy the way that the people on Tabletop are, you know, and he's had a lot of these people. I mean, Laura Bailey is such a nerd. I mean, she is like the biggest nerd. I mean, she's so cute and gorgeous, but she's such a fucking nerd. She has what? 250,000 followers on Twitter. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one of the most sought after personalities and sought after voice actresses, like, if I'm going to care about the actual lives of people I'm watching, I'd rather it be like people like her or Ashley Birch and so forth than the people that they give me on reality television. Like, because these people are actually honest is the thing, you know? I mean, the, the people on the, in, in the YouTube scene are honest right. about their lives and, and what they're doing and that they're huge nerds and that they're, you know, trying to make ends meet and so forth. It's not an act. And so, it, it, does that make sense? Like, I, I, it's just, it's more appealing to me because they love Star Wars, they love Marvel, they love DC, they love all the nerdy things that I love, but they talk about it in such a non pretentious way where I listen to Star Wars podcasts or Marvel or DC podcasts and people right. are so up their own ass these days, Matt. I'm fucking sick of it. I'm making a living <laughs> on my podcast complaining about how sick of it I am. Video game people and uh, internet are you personalities. you making money off this thing? Or? See, no, trust me. I'll, I'll, you'll be the first to know when I make actual money, but I am, but I am getting hits. So off of it so you're doing it often enough that if you were getting paid you could be making a living off of complaining about how pretentious no I think i'm, I'm right. close enough that cursing off you know fake nerds or or fanatical nerds is right. is seeming like a good career move for me at this point yes <laughs> <laughs> no i'd agree with you and you point you mentioned reality tv like you kind of the stuff you see on net on yeah. networks yeah 
the biggest difference I see between that and, and this kind of stuff is those shows all to a lesser or greater extent, except for the reality shows that are all based in whatever job you do, like the reality show about the gold miners, the reality show about the Pawn Star people, but all of the just what we think of as true reality TV, they all to a greater or lesser extent seem to glorify being stupid. Like fucking Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore glorifies being a complete idiot. And if you are not somebody who thinks of themselves as an idiot and you actually think, you know, being smart and thoughtful and caring about these kinds of things has value, you are going to get turned off to those kind of programs and you are going to be much more attracted to programs where people do the kinds of stuff that you're into. You know, if you're into tanning, you might like Jersey Shore. <laughs> if you're into video games, you are not really going to like Jersey Shore. You are probably going to like tabletop or critical role even if they're not playing video games those are all people who've made all their money by being in video games absolutely and to tie this uh discussion watch the stuff that validates your own identity and these kinds of programs validate the identities you and i have to greater or lesser extents far more than network tv does in some cases even though i will watch pretty much anything involving a person wearing a cape. Yeah. And look, the bottom line is I'm not the only person on the planet that likes board games, but doesn't have a ton of people to play board games with and so plays video games online. And I think, you know, the, the, the stereotype of the sort of call of duty, like bro, you know, jock video right. gamer or whatever, doesn't really apply at this point. I mean, those people are buying video games, but that's not really what video game culture is. That's part of why Will Wheaton has so many video game people on his show. And, you know, th- there is a close connection between board games and video games that I did want to mention on this podcast and, you know, the fact that independent games and strategy games and so forth are very much coming back into fashion and people are, 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 are really into it and so forth. Um, you know, I wish we all had exposure to the social situation that great board gaming uh, experiences provide, but it's not always possible, um, for example. And so I do think it was, it's interesting, you know, again, I mean, if you look at, uh, at Wheaton, I mean, just t- Titan's Grave, I mean, Lara Bailey, a video game actress voice, uh, Yuri Lewenthal, major video game actor voice, including the Prince of Persia, like all the great yep. rebooted Prince of Persia games he did, which is fantastic. And he has a very funny story about meeting Jake Gyllenhaal at, at a restaurant in LA, the terrible Jake Gyllenhaal Prince of Persia movie, and, and they had like <laughs> a Twitter battle while sitting there at the restaurant together, and then they ended up you know, meeting and talking or whatever. It was very right. funny. The less we can say about the uh, Jake Gyllenhaal Prince of Persia yeah. movie, the better. <laughs> yeah. I, but I, it's I funny that's... that they're both Jews is the great thing. You have Yuri Lewenthal doing the voice of Prince of Persia. No one criticizes. He's a big Jew. He talks about it. And then you have Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> well, that's because most of the Prince of Persia games are pretty good. Nobody cared that Jake Gyllenhaal was Jewish. They cared that the movie sucked ass. Oh, yeah, yeah. Although it's a great soundtrack. <laughs> but, yeah, the point, just the full point that the Jews are doing the voice is great. But, um, but yeah, 
but Hank Green is involved in, in, in websites involved in this stuff. And Hayslip is a giant video gamer, although Hayslip is also a PR person for the Yellow Board Gaming Company at this point, which is great because I love the Yellow Boy Board Gaming Company. And, you know, she's totally into this type of stuff. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, I think the, the cultures are more connected than maybe it seemed like a couple of years ago between the board gaming and video gaming community. I agree. I, I I think they always were. I, I mm. think I, I I to some extent think this sort of divisiveness is a you know these hard dividing lines that are sometimes drawn between one and the other probably in real life are not that that set in stone. I think everybody kind of you know does a little bit of everything that they're into. You know, Whedon in tabletop will say I'm having fun with my friends and this is why board games are great, better than video games. But he'll also do a documentary for Netflix on the history of video games where he talks about how great video games are. So like, you know, I I generally don't like divisiveness within these kind of subcultures because I think in real life, I like video games and I like board games. I, I, I don't think I should have to choose one or the other. And I don't think one community is intrinsically better than the other because of the thing that they like. You know, we can talk about whether one is more prone to assholes or not. I don't know. But, mm. you know, this idea that one just makes you better because you like it more than the other, I don't buy it. Just like I don't buy that you have to, if you like DC, you have to hate Marvel. Anyway, well, that's, that's a whole my little other topic. <laughs> By the way, uh, DC, uh, congratulations on focusing on the Justice League, which nobody saw or cares about, and getting yeah. rid of Joss Whedon, who's your best director, and Batgirl, which is your most interesting unexplored property. Congratulations. Well done. Nobody cares about Shazam or The Flash or Aquaman, so I hope yeah, you're happy with yourself. Pretty Fucking much. Yeah, unless... unless Aquaman gets a 98 on Rotten Tomatoes. I, there's no chance I'm seeing that. We've talked about how box office numbers are like trying to get away from them and, and take away from their importance a little bit. I think the one thing they do accurately gauge is how good a job a company does marketing their movie. And I think the fact that the Warner Brothers never found a counter to the this is going to suck mentality everybody had about Justice League is why it did so poorly. Um, Can I just lay out some basic facts really quickly? Yep. Justice League had the following characters. Batman, Superman, Yep. Wonder Woman. What do these three characters have in common? They are the, by far the three most popular comic book characters ever in the history yes. of comic books. Yep. What did Black Panther have in terms of recognizability? Absolutely nothing. And they yep. beat the Justice League in three to four days, depending on how yep. you want to measure it. Pretty much. So um, you get Joss Whedon to leave, and he, you know, being Whedon, claims that he was the one who decided to leave, which I don't believe for two seconds that he didn't have story ideas for Batgirl, which he loves, is bullshit. And he came in the first place to save the disaster, which was the Zack Snyder Justice League. But hey! Aquaman and Shazam and The Flash with Ezra Miller going to save all of DC Comics. So, well done, Warner Brothers. Yeah, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, <laughs> but Here's how much yeah. even, like, I think Warner Brothers is yeah. 
like not interested in their Shazam movie. There seems to be more media out about the rock as black Adam, who is the Shazam bad guy who is not even going to be the bad guy in Shazam. There seems to be more energy for that than for the Shazam movie. Like I, I, whatever i just and people who are upset that disney seems to be taking over all the movie industry which they are and we should all be very concerned about sure but look at all your favorite supposed studios and tell me that they're doing a good job tell me that fox is doing a good job tell me that warner brothers or paramount or universal is doing a good job the whole dark universe thing with oh, Tom God. Cruise and everything completely <laughs> that failed. Was dead on arrival. The Star Trek reboot, which should have succeeded, by the way, because of a great cast and mostly good movies, even though Into Darkness wasn't good, but the other two movies were pretty good. Star Trek reboot completely failed with Paramount. I mean, it, you literally take any of these projects. The X Men movies are unbelievably, you know, uh, uncertain in terms of quality. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you can hate Disney, but they're the only ones putting out consistently good product. And you know this because you're a media person that deals with media stuff. I am. I, uh, I am concerned about uh, where this is all going, not because I don't think Marvel could do a better job making an X-Men movie than half the X-Men movies. I'm concerned about what the long-term ramifications there will be of one company controlling so much of our media. I, I really think that is a really, really bad, dangerous situation that will badly affect how we process and receive information. I don't think that risk is worth the potential of like a decent X-Men Avengers crossover. So I'm, I'm not bitching at them for buying out Fox because I don't think they should have the X-Men. I'm mad about them buying Fox because I'm scared of what two massive companies yeah merging into one would mean for the state of media in this country. Oh, yeah. And actually, as a pure comic book fan, I did not want the X-Men to come into the Avengers universe. Like, I could care less. I, I really don't care either way. No, uh, no, but I'm saying I specifically do not want it, regardless of corporate right. tactics. Like, I wanted the X-Men to exist as their own thing. So not only is that not a positive for me, I'm saying, in terms of Disney buying Fox, but you know what I mean? It's, it's actually a negative. I don't want the X-Men coming into this universe. The X-Men have so much going on. But Fox just continues to put out shit. The way Sony with Spider-Man continues to put out shit. And this Venom yep. movie with Tom Hardy, I think, is bullshit. You know? And that they, nobody wants to see. Nobody it. wants to see. Who cares about Venom? I mean, I, I think, honestly, man... And we'll just we'll just wrap on this, and we'll we'll wrap the podcast. But I, I think Spider Man underperformed. I thought a Marvel Spider Man would actually have made more money than it did. And I just don't think mm-hmm. people care about Spider Man the way they used to. And Sony trying to you know capitalize on it with a fucking Venom movie, I, I don't see happening. Especially if it's not rated R. You know, like it's just right. Yeah. Except even then, like Venom is not. If they wanted to make like the R-rated Spider-Man movie, they would make the Carnage movie. But Carnage was kind of a boring character. Mm-hmm. He's another like 90s character and all of the characters that Marvel and DC came up with in the 90s were these like we have to be image violent, but we're we can't like the 90s were crap. So why we're like leaning so hard on the 90s comic stuff, I don't understand. It's my complaint about Aquaman, because that's 
that biker look, that's the 90s Aquaman look. And that's when Aquaman became the fucking joke of the DCEU. He was not for large swaths of his existence until that look came about. And fucking Snyder and Warner Brothers decided that's the look we want. And I do not understand why. Well, I think Warner Brothers needs to take responsibility for their own decisions. I'm not saying I'm a huge Zack Snyder fan, but he wasn't in charge of the studio, so they made their own decisions. I will say Alistair has long been a Aquaman fan, long before the modern DCEU. We're just reading comics growing up. I know that's bizarre and unusual, but there are some Aquaman fans out there. He's not actually that excited about the Jason Momoa uh, portrayal, but he does like Aquaman. So Yeah, because Momoa was bad. Like... The fact that he Jason Momoa was cool in another show doesn't mean he's automatically cool in everything he does. And I thought Aquaman was an annoying character. I thought he really was not watchable. So I don't blame him for liking Aquaman, but being uninterested in an Aquaman movie because that's not what Aquaman should be. And I think this is the problem. And I think DC still has on paper the best sort of solo characters historically uh, across the board, (laughs) but they're not making good movies. And so you can make Black Panther and Doctor Strange into giant franchises, but you have the Justice fucking League, which everyone who likes DC was waiting for a Justice League movie for such a long time, and it wasn't a terrible movie, and still nobody saw it. It wasn't terrible, but like... If you're going to have three of the most important superheroes ever and the next three most important superheroes in DC altogether, just okay isn't okay. You've got to do better than that. You can't, you know, it's one thing if Iron Man and Captain America and Thor are like just a decent superhero movie, even though the Avengers was much better than decent. Those are literally the dregs that Marvel had left over after selling all of their popular characters to Fox and Sony. Warner Brothers, that's their best characters, and that's the best you can come up with. That's not good enough. I'm sorry. Like, I'm not going to be content with a Justice League movie just to see the Justice League if it's a shitty Justice League. I'm not going to lie. I like Cyborg. I, I don't want to get into a long debate about Justice League in a Fair show enough. about board I, games. I, I, I will <laughs> We've say, gone yeah. way off the rails. <laughs> yeah. And, and by the way, back to board games, Disney has exploited their properties pretty well, especially with Star Wars um, in, in the board game territory, you know, which is understandable. There's tons of also Warhammer board games that we've talked about. Uh, HP Lovecraft board games. And oh, so, yeah. you know, people love these themes and things. Um, I, I, I think one of the things that come out of our extended podcast is that, you know, a lot of it is the people that you play with and creating a fun Absolutely. kind of I think experience. I think at its core, that is what determines if this is a fun experience for you or not. Yeah. You know, the game itself, we all have preferences about what we, what kind of games we like to play, but if the people you're with are not into it with you and you don't enjoy being with them, you're not going to enjoy any game, uh, you know, that much. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to get into board games, find people to get into them with that you like, or yeah. get your friends that you already have into them with you, um, and that's how you have the best board gaming experience. It's not about whether you like fantasy or sci-fi more. If you like 
dice games or card games more. It's ultimately about who you play with. Mm. So let me ask you this as a final question, which is, Mm -hmm. I think tabletop's good done. Um, I think so. Expressed his dissatisfaction with uh, Legendary and delaying his video releases and so forth for season four. Uh, I think he's just sick of the whole thing. And now that yep. they're in a corporate structure, Wheaton is openly and sort of anti corporate guy. And he's, you know, he's not into it. I think he's done with it. So that's done. We do have Critical Role, which is great. And they have some other board gaming, you know, small podcasts on the Nerdist Network. Um, mm-hmm. But is. Even if you love Critical Role, it can't replace doing great RPGs with your friends and stuff like that. So, final question. Where do you, either where do you see or where would you like to see board gaming culture go utilizing the internet the way that Tabletop did so well, but I honestly have no idea what the next step is in this evolution? I mean, I haven't thought about this a whole lot. I, I you know... It would be nice to see something fill its place that can also be a popular means of telling people about mm-hmm. independent games that come out. Because mm-hmm. one thing I think I have read is that board games tend to be one of the most successful things that can get crowdsourced. Like there have oh, been Kickstarter makes a shit ton for board games. Yeah. Now I don't know how many of those games actually turn out to be good. I'm sure there's plenty of instances of more than you would think board games stinking more than but, you would think I've kickstarted too. And they both turned out great. I know other people, sometimes it doesn't work out, but more than you think actually turn out pretty good because people okay. are educated as to what they're getting in most cases. Right. So without, a de facto kind of publicity for these things. I don't know how you let people know these games are available other than the ones who did pay for the Kickstarter in the first place. And obviously if you're putting the effort into making a game, you want to sell it to more people than that. So there are other game series. I think Smosh games does some board game stuff. I, there was something else I saw that where they played Betrayal on the House of the Hill, but they were all dressed like, like, carrot, like they were going to a brothel in Westworld for some reason. Um, so I don't know what the hell that was. I didn't like it that much. The ultimate um, nerd fantasy. Fuck them. There's some. I well, one of the people they had on was Markiplier, who went on a tabletop <laughs> episode. So that's and who, true. And who seems like a, a, a lovely person. Um, Markiplier is a nice guy. I believe he's a little bit of a corporate sellout in terms of the video games he does, but no one, yeah, people don't bash him that much. Eh, whatever. I don't really care. Um, he's guys, absolutely an unbelievably good-looking and good-sounding guy. There's no doubt about sure. that. Yeah. And dude's got to make a living. Whatever. Oh right? yeah, no one, no one, yeah, no one holds that against. Sellout. I sometimes think is a word lobbied by people who wish they could be doing the thing that they are accusing well, the people of. It, it, you know what? Like, With like, video games, it's tough because people like Total Biscuit and Jesse Cox and Dodger get courted all the times by video games companies to play their games. And sure. they found the nice middle ground where the video game companies allow them ahead of time to say, I will do this game on my channel and I'll release it, but I'm not going to promise you that I'm going to fake like it, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that's incredibly forward-looking in the corporate market for any product. 
for a corporation sure. to say, we want publicity and we like you so much that we're willing to risk the fact that you might not like this product just to get exposure or whatever. And Jesse Cox and Total Biscuit and those guys really make fun of themselves for doing it. Will Wheaton's another guy with this kind of personality. So I think there is a middle ground there. I'm just saying I think Markiplier has become a little bit of a, you know, like he's so he's so in demand. It's like with any, right. you know, it's like with any one of his personality. But yeah, by all accounts, he seems like a really sweet guy. And that was a fun episode, by the way, the Marvel Heroes episode or whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so like to me, to finish my point, mm-hmm. tabletop, there was a actual what they called the Will Wheaton effect, which was if a game showed up on tabletop, its sales dramatically spiked Gone. to the point that out of stock. Honestly, yeah, I've seen it happen in season the, four. Out, out of the, you can't even get it on the store. To the point that they gave Will Wheaton, like the International Board Game Federation or whatever the hell it's actually called, gave him some award for like service to board games. Without tabletop, something's got to fill that void of telling people when new stuff comes out. Because I don't think board games tend to break into like mainstream media very often, um, except occasionally a story about how board games are popular now. So I don't know what it's going to be, but that's a service that that show did that if we're going to still keep making more and more games and crowdsourcing them, something else has got to emerge that can do that in its place. Yeah. Tabletop doesn't feel ultimately like a reality show because he is so clearly legitimate and real about his love for what's going on. Oh, for sure. He's not even acting in those, you know, in off camera interviews. He's that intense and that into it. And that's, I think why it's so great. And I think why people like it so much. Um, And by the way, the one thing we haven't mentioned, man, you being in sports and me growing up with sports, right. is that tabletop and cool online board gaming is like the much cooler, more interesting version of celebrity poker, basically. Like, yeah. we get to watch no Will different. Wheaton, Laura Bailey, Yuri Lewenthal, and all these people play board games is so much more fun than watching online poker, but it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean... Even if it's not celebrity poker, yeah. professional poker. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah. No, but I, either comparison is very fair. This is an only slightly or dorkier variation of that same thing. You are watching somebody else play a game. Now, with poker, you are watching somebody play a game professionally, whereas this is a hobby for everybody involved, but basically, except Wheaton, uh, sort of. Uh, so there's that slight variation, but yeah, I think if you watch online poker or if you watch poker on ESPN, which I occasionally still do, you don't really have a lot of right to judge the people who like to watch somebody play D and D. All right. So let's end with a couple quick hits about uh, some moments we loved about tabletop pool and close out. I'll give you, right. I'll give you one to start. I love the resistance because it's all women and he jokes mm-hmm. about all the tampon talk that was going on beforehand. And right. he's totally confused. And he thinks there's no way Felicia Day, who seems like the most honest, terrible liar of all time, there's no way yep. that she's lying to him. And she completely owns him. 
and you can tell on camera, both in the interviews and on screen, that she owns him and how proud of she is. And she even bends <laughs> the rules because she knows he's a stickler for the rules. And mm-hmm. so all this stuff I thought was like the ultimate. He loves Felicia Day, but at that moment, he really respected her. Loved it. Sure. Um, I feel like I've talked about most of the episodes that are really my favorites. I, I, I mean, when when Chris Hardwick, clo- Hardwick closes Dragon Age by saying, I'm Will Wheaton, eat poison and go fuck yourself, I think <laughs> I, I kind of lost it at that one. Everything John Rogers says in Fate Core is yeah. just it's like, I'm sorry, I, I'm incredibly high because I ate all these pills that were next to your hospital bed. Does she know Jillian? Uh, everything with Rothfuss and Eldritch Horror is yeah. hysterical. Um, oh, my God. Do you think, by the way, do you think they prepared ahead of time that Eldritch was going to be the final episodes? Because it's kind of the perfect thing to end on. It's cooperative. It's narrative. It has the some of the best characters. Um I don't know. I was impressed. Mm, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably this, the most immersive of any of the games they play on season four. So maybe they had the hunch that they were going to end the season that way. But I mean, maybe if we knew this is definitely it, I guess. I, I mean, it's certainly he's just as a two parter yeah. with a pretty advanced story. It definitely works as a way to close out the show. Um, but I feel like if it was really going to be the season, the series finale, there would have been more like some sense of like, this is over to it. And there really isn't, except for the one moment where in uh, the first half, Whedon rolls badly. He throws his, the dice off set. <laughs> he's like, all right, I'm going to level with you. Dice have been fucking with me for four seasons. <laughs> it's time I fucked them back. Like that's maybe his one little like meta moment. And by the way, but, by the way, really quickly, they don't put explicit lyrics on any of the episodes, and he curses so much, they bleep yep. it out, but it's still a family-friendly show. I don't know how he pulls it off. I, I guess it's the bleeps. Um, yeah, but it's... one thing I yeah. like on Critical Role is that they mm. swear. Uh, yeah, but I mean, just I'm saying, just the fact that the you know family-building elements of Tabletop are so strong that you know, it would almost be unrealistic for him not to curse on the show, for example. I mean, he curses way more than most of the guests curse on, on the show. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think Eldritch Horror sums up so much of the best of what he's doing. I mean, Patrick Rothfuss, you know, as a guest, it, you know, is in that category. But also the two women that he had are just very... I think Wheaton had more women than men overall. If you counted all the guests and all the episodes, I think he had hmm. more women than men. And that could be. He's totally a feminist, like a real good, honest to goodness feminist. His yeah. wife is awesome. If you ever see Anne on tabletop, his I like kids the are episodes. great. I like Mice and Mystics when you see the four of them. Oh, it's great. Um, it's so great. Yeah. Because he's taking it so seriously and they're trying to comfort him you know and so forth when things go terribly you know inevitably and so forth but Um, you can tell that they're into it too like when the two sons come up with their little tag team strategy to fight the i think it's a giant spider like you can tell that they're actually thinking pretty hard about how their skills can complement each other uh Mm. so you know i i i dig that 
Yeah. And arguably the first, and I'll leave you with this, arguably the first tabletop moment was when they played Ticket to Ride in the first season, yep. and they were about finished to count all the trains, and, and Anne was so mad that she it. smacks the table. And if you've ever seen a gaming table before, people, it, it's kind of a spongy, uh, curved device. Gaming tables are very weird, like specialized gaming tables, and it bounced all of the trains out of place. They had to spend God knows how long rebuilding it, and it became like mm-hmm. a thing, you know? And yep. I think that's the important thing with a show, you know? Whether it's a sports show, an entertainment show, a YouTube show, you need to have like a thing or a series of things that recur, right? That's what Seinfeld yep. did so well. That's what the best shows do great, you know, is bring things back. And I think they did that so well. And I don't know who's going to take his place, because I've seen other people talk about board games and video games since then, but it's never as entertaining as tabletop well i would just say people if you're a fan of will wheaton and tabletop i would follow so many of the characters and the people he has on that show video game comedians actors and so forth it's amazing people on that show follow those people you will not regret it thank you maddie for being on this podcast i'm i'm really glad to be talking about this subject finally um and uh you know and and i hope it's something that you know continues to be uh popular with the kids because my experience is kids like board games when they're exposed to them honestly even if they like video games um agreed yeah so all right people well thank you for listening um hope you've enjoyed the recent podcast definitely more coming soon as always and we at the bizzlecast are out